everyone and welcome to a very special episode of Not Another Teen Wolf podcast this week. We are joined for this episode by Heidi Tandy who is a massive fandom presence as we will discuss in a moment but Karen, Courtney and I are here today to chat with Heidi about the one millionth fan work milestone being posted on Archive of Our Own. So this whole episode is going to be about AO3 and about fan fiction in general and how the Teen Wolf fandom has affected uh, basically the the fan fiction world and the, the Teen Wolf fandom's presence on AO3. So first of all, hello Karen and Courtney joining us today. Hi. Hi. And then a very special hello and thank you to Heidi. Hello. Hi all. Hi. So Heidi is someone who I first heard of through the Harry Potter fandom uh, and she's been involved with MuggleNet in doing the HPEF conventions like Ascendio and a bunch of other stuff. She's hosted panels at Comic-Con, but until we organised this interview, I didn't know that she was one of the main players behind AO3 as well. So Heidi, do you want to kind of give a short, I'm sure you could probably write a novel about it, but do you want to give sort of a short intro to our listeners who might not know you about sort of what you've done in in fandom and how everything ended up leading up to AO3 and then we'll get into AO3. Well, maybe not a novel, but I did write the <laughs> Harry Potter chapter for Smart Pop Books Fic Why Fan Fiction is Taking Over the World, which came out late 2013 and it's a fantastic compilation of really the history of fan works going back I mean obviously going back to you know the time of Homer, but coming all the way through really early 2013, talking yeah. about why people are fanishly creative, what inspires them. And yeah, I wrote about Harry Potter and how it changed the world, changed online, how online changed Harry Potter. And it's a good book. People should pick it up. I've been involved with AO3, with the OTW, Organization for Transformative Works, which is the nonprofit that is behind the AO3 basically since it was created. And the reason for that is completely legalistic. Um, when I was a baby lawyer, I wrote terms of use policies for things like the New York Times. And then I went on to do it for fan sites for a couple of, you know, fan sites that focus on news, but also for Fictionality, which I was one of the founders of back in 2012. Mm -hmm. So I came on board AO3, not so much to focus on IP law because Rebecca Tushnet, who was one of the very early involved people was certainly more than capable of handling all the IP issues, but because I had basically a phenomenal archive of terms of use privacy policies in COPPA, Children's Online Privacy and Protection Act regulatory procedures and best practices. So that's why I came on board. But because of that, I've been involved in part of the legal committee for the AO3 since we started. And I had this awesome sort of front row seat at the development of everything. Yeah. And it's, it's really interesting because about a week or so ago, I was searching around for something else, and I ended up finding a document from 2007 where Naomi Novik, who wrote um, the Temeraire novels and is also you know involved in gaming writing and fan fiction, she's one of our founders, and she was sort of sharing the fruits of her discussion with Cory Doctorow of Boing Boing, who also is a novelist who wrote Little Brother, yeah. among other things. And some of the amazing things that were in that email was a discussion of ways to counter how some people 
novel writers, nonfiction writers, studios, and fanfic writers who weren't knowledgeable about the specifics of modern IP law were really instilling a climate of fear in fan creators and making people concerned that, oh, if I write this and I put it online, I'm going to be sued for $100,000 for copyright infringement. And I have to yeah. point out, this is 2007. YouTube barely existed. Mm. Facebook was only had only, I think, been accessible to non-students for maybe a year at that point. The internet in 2007 is not the internet of 2014. It's a lot more phenomenal in some ways, but it's also a lot more structured by both corporations and nonprofits and, and you know government and educational things but there's a lot less individualized content you know back in the early days of the Harry Potter fandom everybody had their own GeoCities page everyone yeah. had their own oh, AOL gosh. page or Angel Fire with the blinky text. <laughs> oh i remember that oh. Oh, yep <laughs> i remember yeah. first discovering the internet well it would have been earlier than that i think but yeah my first exploration in the Harry Potter fandom being like a list of quote unquote spoilers or theories of what would happen in, I think, Goblet of Fire. Goblet of Fire. From like a, yeah, and it was just like someone's list on like a GeoCities page. And I'm like, yeah, this is clearly factual as a 13 year old. <laughs> yeah, okay, like, cool. But yeah, sorry, go on. Oh, the internet. No, it, exactly. And that's, you know, that kind of stuff was so awesome. But it was also a lot harder to get information around because it was so. So bifurcated isn't the really isn't really the right word. Billionifurcated, possibly. <laughs> Can that be a word? Yeah. It can and now. yeah, multi-headed Hydra, you know, to put it mildly. And these days, because there are sites out there and there are news organizations out there and because fan fiction has become mainstream i think people understand that if you post your fan fiction online no a studio is not going to sue you for a hundred thousand dollars for copyright infringement and by the way if they did there's resources i mean there always have been the electronic frontier foundation has been an awesome resource since the 90s if not before for fan writers and things like the beekman center at harvard but ao3 is now out there as an organization to help people if they get a takedown notice now not everybody needs a takedown notice resource when larry lessig had a dispute with youtube over a video of a lecture where he used a song by the band phoenix as sort of a background for something and their music publishers got a takedown notice on it. Their Australian music publishers, let's be really precise, did a takedown notice about it. And basically their settlement has impacted the way that YouTube now has to deal with takedown notices. It can't just be a bot. It can't just be some computer that says this algorithm says these things match. There has to now be a step as to whether or not it's a fair use situation. And I know that's something we're going to discuss later, but back in 2007 and 2000. 2008, a lot of people were very concerned about the parameters for fair use and didn't believe that it was real and didn't believe that it would really protect them. And I think that one of the awesome things the AO3 and the OTW have done is make sure that people understand that even if they don't understand the exact parameters of where the law is, that in general, you can do this and safe. you're safe. And at the yeah. most, you'll get a takedown notice and have to recalibrate it. Yeah. But even if you get a takedown notice, there are ways to go back. I mean, one of the things I wrote about in my chapter in FIC was that back in, you know, 1999, 2000, 2005, there were people who said, if you get a takedown notice, all you can do, or if you get a cease and desist letter, all you can do is delete all your 
stuff. Delete your account. Delete everything you have on the internet except maybe possibly your email address. Change your name and hide. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it used to be a huge fear-mongering thing, and, and now it is kind of uh, people feel a lot uh, freer about fan creation, I guess. And I think some of that is because we've been saying since – 2003, 2004, that at least for things that are non-commercial, we're not talking about stuff that's commercial or that's commercially sold. At least for things that are non-commercial, at this point, all of the larger fandoms have what's called a latches defense or something called estoppel. Now that in the United States is a, or I mean, internationally, but in the United States, specifically. That's a legal doctrine that says that the longer you've done something openly and notoriously and the powers that be know or should know about it and are not doing anything to stop you, the longer you continue to do it, the less ability they have to stop you from doing that exact same thing. Doesn't mean you can expand it. Yeah. It doesn't mean you can suddenly start selling stuff. So yes, that. It's almost like squatters rights in real estate or something. Like it kind of uh, (laughs) made, made me think of that. But uh I mean, we have our, our whole uh, discussion ahead of us, but what you mentioned about getting sued, uh, about them not being able to sue you, what are the situations vice versa? I know that obviously, if, for example, J.K. Rowling, um, when she was first touring as an author, was not uh, basically, if someone handed over their fan fiction to her, she had like the policy to be you know, visibly seen never touching it so she can never be... Uh, sued if a plot line comes up that's the same as someone's fan fiction or something like that. What are the circumstances the o- other way around in terms of, say, uh, uh, powers that be uh, using a fan fiction plot or something like that? Well, I'm trying to remember who said it because it was said in connection with somebody who was speaking about meta and speaking about Teen Wolf. And the fact that you've got thousands and thousands of people who are all theorizing at the same time. Something's going to be right. So something is going to overlap. But the thing is, you can't copyright an idea. Just because somebody uses the same idea that you have, there's no copyright ownership in you having that idea. So Mm -hmm. just because you have it and they do it, that doesn't mean anything. If you've written a paragraph of dialogue and that paragraph ends up being dialogue in something, then you have a situation, but you can't copyright, you can't copyright a phrase. You can't copyright and well, you can't copyright a phrase. And that's a very interesting thing because that's why lines about mahogany are not copyrighted to either The Hunger Games or, um, oh God, what movie was it in? Was it The Emperor's New Groove? There was a line in The Emperor's New Groove about, yes, that is mahogany. It's almost the exact same line. (laughs) And nobody holds a copyright in it because it's a short phrase or a sentence. It's the same way that, say, for example, Douglas Adams wrote in one of his Dirk Gently books, wrote about a spreadsheet program that turns spreadsheets into a flock of birds and then neil gaiman incorporated that same concept as an homage into american gods Mm. nobody owns the concept of spreadsheets turning into flocks of birds Mm. but neil gaiman used it specifically because you know he was doing an homage to who he'd written a biography of about back in the mid 80s yeah no no fair enough it's uh it's an interesting concept and one that people probably uh, don't know that much about. They're not sort of delving into the the legal side of fan fiction. And I think that with AO3 and, and the way that that has all developed, it is 
it is a good thing because it's not like people shouldn't be asking those questions, but uh, in fandom today, you don't see very many people assuming they aren't safe as fan creations. So the, uh, the dynamic has definitely changed, I would say, because most people assume that they are safe and they are fine as fan creators as opposed to the fear that used to exist about it, I guess. And on the storytelling side of fandom, you don't see many cease and desist letters continuing mm. to come around. I mean, I remember back in 2005, the Motion Picture Association of America basically sent cease and desist letters to at least two dozen people who were using NC-17 to denote that their fix were adult oriented. And yeah. they sent out cease and desist letters. One of them was a friend of mine. She took down all her West Wing fic and hid. I found out about it and got in touch with a couple of people and called somebody who I had worked with at the New York Times who I'd been a source for before. And I was like, the MPAA is trying to do this and they don't have the right to do this because people are using it in a descriptive sense and they're not using the logo. If they were using the logo and they were using it in a commercial sense, we'd be having a different conversation about trademarks. But that wasn't what was happening. And, you know, there have been other circumstances like Warner Brothers used to want people to kids to be able to Google Harry Potter and see only wholesome and non-problematic <laughs> stuff if they Googled it. The minute Daniel announced Eckes, they stopped asking. <laughs> nice. oh, fair enough. Thanks, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, exactly. Once your star gets naked on stage every night, yeah. <laughs> you're going to find non-wholesome stuff on the internet. Yeah, there's that. <laughs> See, uh, our, our little group here, like I, for example, have sort of been into fan fiction pretty much since I discovered how to use the internet. I remember it went, I was like, oh my God. There are, like, more stories about the books that I like. And I remember probably the first fan fiction I ever discovered was um, Tamora Pierce because that's been my uh, longest-running obsession since I was about seven years old. And then it would have gotten into Harry Potter, which was when sort of intense fandom behaviour started. Karen is not really a, a fan fiction person. <laughs> we, are, we are training her. She doesn't... She She's doesn't work. calling me out, Nat. <laughs> throw her under the bus. And then Courtney is pretty much in charge of the fan fiction department of our uh, podcast when we do reviews of fan fiction and, you know, all of that kind of thing. She's she's very fan fiction-y as well. So it's not a, a problem. We've got a, a bit of a mixed group, so that's why I let Karen sort of take the intro in terms of AO3's uh, creation, why it was created, because Courtney and I were sort of there for it, but Karen was not. So do yeah. you want to uh, go ahead, Karen? Oh, so you already know the answer to this. Okay. Well, um, well, then you can just tell me, Heidi. But uh, yeah, basically, I was wondering when exactly AO3 came about and what what the initial objective was for a site like this. Well, it started being developed in discussions in 2007, and a lot of the reasoning behind it was to have a core location, A, where we would own the servers and didn't have to worry about an ISP getting freaked out by getting a DMCA, that's a Digital Millennium Copyright Act takedown notice that said, oh, this is infringing and has to come down, because while 
those sorts of takedown notices have gotten a lot more control. Well, they went uncontrollable for a while because of bots and horrible actions by basically bots scanning the internet and then automatically sending out takedown notices. And we've curtailed a lot of that um, just by being outspoken and vocal and saying, no, you can't do this. And that's things like the Lawrence Lessig and Phoenix situation. But also, so by owning the servers, there wouldn't be anybody who could tell us it had to come down. Mm-hmm. And that was something that was actually very important when we were doing Fiction Alley. We didn't own the servers, but we wanted to be in a situation where we had control over what was on them. So there was a fan of Harry Potter fan fiction who owned a website hosting company, and he offered to host us with no concern for if there was a DMCA notice, it would come directly to me and I would be able to deal with it. And we never actually ever on Fiction Alley had one. There have been a couple situations where AO3 has been asked to take things down. And in general, if somebody has uploaded an actual chapter from a book or an actual screenplay that's been published, those are things that we don't host. There has to be something creative and transformative about it. But it works in two other ways. If somebody has, say, for example, uploaded somebody else's fan fiction and the other person can establish that it's theirs, then we take down the improper, illicit, unauthorized upload as well. So it's not just protecting things that are published with copyright registrations. We're supportive of anything that's being literally infringed on without a fair use defense. So that was one of the main reasons was to own the servers. But the other thing was to be a clearinghouse and a place for information so that people could understand their rights as fan, as fanish creators and as creators in fandom and as readers and sharers of stories. I mean, honestly, it was only in early 2014, literally weeks before we're doing this podcast recording, uh-huh. that the European community courts said that linking to content that is publicly online is not a copyright infringement. Weeks ago, the internet's been around for 22 plus years. (laughs) Uh, I suppose it's just something they never got around to. (laughs) They never got around to it on that high a level, but of course that means that people can go around and say, well, the law isn't settled on this. And no, it's not, but we kind of pretty much know. Yeah. I remember sort of again first discovering fan fiction and it would have been on uh like forums and then later it seemed to be like one of the sort of safest places or most quality places was in like individual live journal communities uh and then fanfiction.net which i believe had some problems i don't know what exactly but i mean what is the difference with ao3 as a a hosting site to all of those kind of scattered places basically well individual live journals are an awesome place or tumblers or dreamwits are an awesome place to keep your stories because it's your archive you can control how it looks you can control exactly what's on it etc etc so i am a huge fan of people keeping their content in two or three different places It's, you know, to some extent, it's slightly different communities, but I have, you know, my fan fiction on LiveJournal going back to 2000, well, 2001. Mm -hmm. And I have, you know, personally, I have a lot of my Harry Potter stuff is still only on Fiction Alley. I don't think I've posted any fic on Tumblr, but I mostly vid these days and I have a lot of videos on Tumblr because it's a good platform for sharing it. But the difference, I think, between fanfiction.net and AO3 is that fanfiction.net wasn't created 
by or for fans. And speaking completely personally, mm-hmm. I think that they are very knee-jerk and very paranoid about stuff. I don't know if it's because they don't have lawyers who come from fandom or lawyers who have an expertise and focus on transformative works and fair use. But their perspective about everything was always to take the most paranoid approach to something. Yeah. If one person said this could be a problem, like we could talk now or later about real person fiction. Mm. I've got that towards the end actually, because <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I have, I think we'll focus on team Wolf first because <laughs> I have gone up on down on real person fiction during my time in fandom. So I have questions about that as well, but yes, but ha- did you ever see, but did you ever see the social network? Yes. And that's, this is the thing. That's the thing. And then I, and I read historical fiction of Elizabeth the first. This is the thing. I, I have, I have questions. We'll, we'll get to it, but <laughs> they have, did they have an entire clear out of NC 17? They did. They did. If I'm remembering correctly, they shut down on September 10th or 11th of 2002 and said that it was in memory of 2000 and, and, you know, in memory of 911. And they came back and they had, I believe, blocked access to all of the NC-17 fix. I may be off by a year, but I don't think so. Wow. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that they do and did. I mean, a few years later was when they said they weren't going to host any real person stories. Mm -hmm. And they've done the same sorts of things. If somebody says that they have, if somebody says that a story is infringing on somebody else's copyright, then fanfiction.net has taken that sort of stuff down, even if the actual copyright holder is not complaining about it. Uh, I remember that happening. I didn't know it was in conjunction with the uh, September 11th anniversary, which, and if they're making that as an excuse, that's super shady, but uh, yeah, we'll, yeah. Uh, <laughs> this is about you guys, not about them. So Moving along. <laughs> I mean, in terms of nice, happy, good things, what yes. do you think it takes for a piece of media to sort of capture people's attention and have them create fan works? Like, what are the types that you're like, yeah, that's going to take off in fandom? If you know what I mean, what's the the X factor to get something having a fandom that creates a lot of extra content? Well, I think these days, um, and this is just me looking sort of at the last two or three years, because that's really when AO3 has become sort of a source and a resource. Um, And also since really the start of Tumblr fandom about three or four years ago and people using Tumblr instead of or in addition to AO3, but also a lot of live watching of stuff um, among people on Twitter. Yes. Which really has only been like the last three years. I mean, I remember I've had my Twitter account for six years. So I remember watching things like Heroes and Supernatural and being like the only person who was live tweeting it. Other than random cast members who would be doing it three hours after me because they're all on the West Coast and I'm hearing, you know, on the East. Yeah. So, you know, that has I think that's changed a lot of how TV viewing happens, but it's also changed how a lot of TV and movie discussion happens. I mean, it's become a lot more important to see a movie the weekend that it comes out, although I know somebody who went to see Frozen this week with with a friend. Mm-hmm. who hadn't who wasn't spoiled for it so you know that happens huh. but I think that there's a couple of different components that will catch people's attention although obviously it's not an absolute and basically what tends to get a lot more attention from fan from fan works are things where the story is either science fiction or magical or fantasy mm-hmm. and so that's 
that's obviously a big thing about it. Having a lot of characters or a lot of crossover potential. Because if something has a lot of crossover potential, then people who are currently writing in one fandom will tend to cross it over with that. And I think that that's what happened. I mean, obviously, Avengers just became completely, completely yeah. huge in the last, you know, three years. And that had a combination of, you know, Pacey Beanpole with daddy issues, mm-hmm. um, with magic, with science, with outer space, with mythological tropes. Mm. So that was just begging for it to explode into a huge fandom in a way that really Superman and Batman movies never did. I mean, there was always a smattering of fix about it, but not a hugely massive amount. Because AO3 is primarily in English, although we obviously host things that are in other languages, things that come out of the U.S., or Canada, or the UK tend to be bigger on AO3 than other fandoms. Although there's a lot of people writing stuff for anime, and there's a lot of people writing stories that are based on video games like Dragon Age. Hmm. So it's not an absolute. But if you look at sort of when TV seasons are and things like that, that happens. But, you know, to go to crossovers, or to go to the ability for easy AUs, that's that explains why things, why standalone movies, which don't normally have massive fandoms, I mean, series movies do, but standalone movies tend to not have massive fandoms. And the f- two exceptions to that are Inception, Inception and Pacific Rim. Yeah. Both of those are just screaming to be crossed over or to be AU'd. Well, it's, it's, to me, it's also like, uh, Inception particularly drops you in in the middle of a story and the characters mm-hmm. are quite well drawn so you want to know what has happened before or after even if it's not an AU or a crossover though AUs definitely work but it, I mean is that an aspect like things that are finished rather than things that have a lot of questions left at the end of it? Yeah, I think that it's where there's a lot of questions. Um, And that's one of the things about Inception, although less so for Pacific Rim. Mm. But in Pacific Rim, you've got so much backstory for all the characters Mm. that even if there aren't so many questions about, you know, what's going to happen to both the monsters and the robots afterwards, there are certainly a lot of questions about what's going to happen to the people and what happened to all of them beforehand. So you've got that. And of course, because Inception ends with no clear answers for any of the characters, Mm. there's so much of a world to play with there and I think that that goes to you know storylines that were finished in some ways but never finished in others I mean all you have to do is look at Buffy which Mm. when it ended it ended as a TV series and there was a logical and sensible ending but how many seasons of comic books have we had how many spin-offs of comic books have we had from Buffy it's it's very odd to kind of see what hits and what misses and things that I expect to sort of oh yeah they'll totally be fan fiction on this or like Pacific Rim for example was not something I expected to get a fandom exactly because I didn't realize the audience was so fandom based uh until sort of after the fandom took off I I thought that it was aimed towards a very different audience than it was and I mean I think Inception is similar in that it actually had a a more generic audience but but yeah in terms of shipping in Mm. fan fiction Courtney has spent a lot of time in the trenches of fandom <laughs> with, with Teen Wolf and shipping. So. Oh, no, not at all. Okay, well, I mean, obviously, you know, that, that's a big draw with fan fiction is shipping. You're, you're going to find fic that doesn't have, that doesn't focus on ships. But for the most part, you're going to. So I guess just having a passionate and active canon ship, like, for example, uh, Curtin Blaine on Glee. 
Um, do you think that boosts activity on the website or do you think more passion can come from a non-canon ship? Um, you know, let's just throw Steric out there, Styles <laughs> and Derek. You know, I- I'm sh- sure you guys are a little familiar, but what kind of ships take off more than others? Well, I think that's the interesting thing about Teen Wolf is that there is so much focus on ships that are not canon. I mean, if you look at it, there have been, what, two on-screen canon romances. Mm-hmm. And that's about it. But you'll find people who ship the sheriff and Melissa or, you know, there's hundreds of stories out there that are, you know, Chris Argent, Peter Hale. So it's not even... <laughs> It's not even that there's yes, but it you know yeah, age. No, no, no. I'm just laughing because she's laughing because she knows I like it. Um, <laughs> no, I, I don't actively read it, but I got I get really annoyed when people um ship. Uh, we've had this discussion where Teen Wolf fandom is like an instrument closing that because people ship. It'll be like a future fic where people have shipped Sheriff Stalinsky and Chris Argent, and I'm like, no, no, that's not a thing. If you're gonna ship. If you're going to ship Chris Argent, it's going to be Peter Hale. Just don't talk to me until you've rewritten this. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Sorry, I'm not snobby. Um, But anyway, yeah, so go ahead. Yes, I... I... Well, then I probably shouldn't mention that on AO3, there are actually more Peter Styles than Scott Styles. Oh! Oh! But but you know... But you know what? It's, it's, It's weird for me, because in Harry Potter... There was a lot of Harry Ron. Yeah. The best friend trope is a thing, and it shows up in many, many other fandoms. Not in this one. Not at all. Mm. That's, I think and, it might be picking up, though. Pardon? Oh, I, I think it might be picking up, though, after yeah, this season. It seems I do to be well. gaining speed. It does surprise me how much it hasn't happened in Teen Wolf, but I've never... I've never really been into the best friend trope in any fandom, but yeah, I do remember Harry and Ron being a fairly, fairly prevalent thing in, in Harry Potter. So I don't know, uh, the Scott and Styles thing, I think they'd like people to focus on it more. Like I, I feel like, the, like the powers that be would almost like people to focus on that more than Steric, but we shall see how that, that goes. Well, I think that that's because they know how old Derek is and we don't. I mean, I suppose that is a big thing. Uh, though many, many fan works and many popular fan fictions in in many many fandoms have focused on pretty weird age gaps, uh, especially yes, in Harry I mean, Potter. It's not uncommon. Well, exactly. The number of people who wrote Hermione, Hermione Snape, Snape is oh, yes. huge. Yeah, I mean, it's we've got a lot about the kind of various, I guess, kinks and tropes that people like and and why they might develop, but. Can I can I just interject yeah, with one last thing about passionate shipping versus ships not really being a motivating force for the fandom? Yes. Mm-hmm. I went specifically to check out Sleepy Hollow. Okay. Because there is a lot of Jen and there's a lot of best friend ship stuff in there with um, Ichabod and Abby, yeah. but mm-hmm. also just all the characters in general. And right now there are almost exactly... 666 Sleepy Hollow fix, which I had to note on AOC. <laughs> and they're mostly Jen. There are yeah. more Jen fix than any single ship. And I think that that's interesting because it shows that a, a show can have a very vibrant fandom. I mean, there's a lot of fic, there's a lot of art, there's a lot of vids, 
there's only been one season of the show so far. Mm-hmm. And there is no one overwhelming OMG flail ship. Yeah. Because um, that's what we were going to, I was going to ask in terms of, uh, you know, what kind of media takes off. Um, and, you know, you were talking about the, you know, the genre and that kind of thing. And I was wondering if it's, if it's, there's a shippable pairing that stands out, like either a, either a canon pairing or a non-canon pairing that really, really stands out. Um, and whether that's like a, a big factor, but yeah, so I was well, kind of wondering. Sure- if any fandoms are generally gen, like, is that the first one you've really seen with Sleepy Hollow? I don't think it's the first one. I mean, apart from the fact that there were a lot of ship debates in Harry Potter, Mm. there was a massive amount of fantastic gen fic in Harry Potter Mm. and a lot of stuff where the ship was there, but extremely, extremely minor. Yeah. Mm. Like his background in the same way it would be in the book or whatever, like not focused on the people getting together. uh, Exactly. Exactly. Where there's no shagging, minimal amount of snogging (laughs) and you know, these people, you know, are possibly married are possibly, you know, dating, but it's not really relevant to what's going on in the story. Um, And of course in supernatural, despite all of the shipping issues from every side, there has always been a serious amount of gen fic. Mm -hmm. And I think that that goes, you know, a lot to sort of the direction of the show because the show doesn't have any sort of overarching romances on the show Mm -hmm. itself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you know, minus obviously, you know, Dean um, in season, I guess, seven. But other than that, because there isn't any constant romance on the show, there isn't anything that's really taken over the ability for people to continue to write Jen set in any genre. Yeah. Because if you're going to be writing a case episode, then you're writing a case episode. So there's been, like I said, a mass amount of supernatural that's Jen or that crosses over and brings in romances from other series. I remember like the first two seasons of Supernatural, there was this huge Sam and Chloe from Smallville thing going on. I don't think I've read crossovers in a really long time in terms of actually mixing characters. I've read I read AUs in terms of mm-hmm. completely setting it elsewhere, but crossovers I haven't seen, so I've, I, we have some questions about that later in terms of the most uh, unexpected or unusual ones that will come up. But again, Karen is is still learning about about Teen Wolf. <laughs> she's taking notes right now, guys. Yeah, she, she's she's still learning. <laughs> I'm not mean. I'm not being mean. But uh, do you want to do you want to learn some more about about the Teen Wolf? Yes. Yes, I do. No, actually, I find this whole conversation incredibly interesting, especially someone who is just sort of getting her feet wet in terms of fan fiction and even fandom in general. I haven't really been in this world for too long. And so kind of looking at this as more of an outsider, I think, than a lot of you guys, it's just, oh my gosh, it's so interesting. I could talk about this forever. But in terms of Teen Wolf, uh, you know, what are some of the most popular types of fix that you get on the site? And then what kind of trends or patterns have you seen as that Team Wolf section has grown to be one of the, the bigger sections on the site, if I remember correctly? It's definitely somewhere in the top 20. Um, there have always been case fix. There have always been episode codas um, because there's a lot of 
there have been time jumps, especially um, between episodes and between seasons. There have been a lot of gap fillers and missing scenes, especially. Um, I think what's been significant this past year, really, since the beginning of season three, but even more so between 3A and 3B, there have been a lot of AUs, especially since Boyd and Erica were killed off. Um, it's kind of like in Harry Potter, a lot of people ignored the epilogue and just <laughs> wrote around it as if the epilogue didn't exist. It's a whole trope. It's called epilogue. What epilogue? And people, I guess, I guess the version, the version in Teen Wolf is nobody we love is dead. And people just ignore it. There's stories that are set in the future that are set, you know, between the two seasons where Boyd and Eric are just alive and hanging out and they're in the, mm -hmm. they're in the story somewhere and they're happy and otherwise everything is exactly the same. And it's very interesting because it, it just goes to show that a vibrant hive mind can make anything happen, even if it's not at necessarily being filmed. So I think that that's obviously a very popular element of it. And in a way, that's interesting for me coming from the Harry Potter fandom, because there used to be. A, and there still is in some quarters, a lot of, oh, I won't read crossovers, I won't read AUs, I only want to read things that are canon compliant. The number of people, I think, in the Teen Wolf fandom who will only read things that are definitely canon compliant is shrinking <laughs> with every episode. And I don't mean that in a bad way, Jeff Davis. <laughs> yeah. It's like, just heads up. Um, okay, well, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna... to make myself seem like the token steric shipper which it, it's not the case but i mean it, it's like discussing teen wolfic and ignoring the elephant in the room i mean steric is a thing they recently the, the steric fans recently celebrated the fact that they hit i think 20,000 pieces of fic uh on the website and considering i think there's 35,000 in total that's you know that's huge it's insane um, it's most popular. It looks like John Locke and Destiel. Uh, I can't even know if I sound that right. I don't watch Supernatural. Sorry, guys. Um, no, that's right. That's right. <laughs> okay. Yay. Okay. Um, so why do you think Steric is a thing? Like, how do you, what is it that has made it so popular? Honestly, it's not like any other ship that I've ever really seen in sort of the uber sense mm. um because but in a lot of other ways it's very very similar you've got characters who are forced to work together who don't necessarily like each other who have conflict but it's not an insurmountable conflict and they're both cute and it's vaguely age appropriate <laughs> we We're think. still unsure. <laughs> we thought for a really long time that there was only a five or a six year age difference. Yeah. Obviously, now we're not sure exactly, yeah. but because we don't have anything specifically countering it, and once we do, it will be like Boyd and Erica being killed off in canon. We're just people ignore it. will ignore it. <laughs> exactly. Nice. And but I think it also hit at a time where people were looking for something new to read about or you know, migrate into, there's a concept called slash migratory fandom, where people just go from one show to the other and focus on something that, yeah. that catches their eye. And since from the very first episode, it was very established that Scott was going to be interested in Allison and they were MFEO made for each other. Mm -hmm. 
that might be why there wasn't that shipping of the best friend ship going on here. You're basically dealing, you know, with that as a set piece. And I think that that was one of the reasons why it caught people's attention so quickly and so early. Yeah, I mean, what you mentioned, the slash migratory thing, I've seen that. I've seen people literally say that in those words, I need something new to ship. Recommend me yes. a new ship. I'm like, I personally have never, like, that's never how I've thought. I've always shipped something because I've seen the canon and it stuck out to me. It's sort of come organically. I never, I've never gone out seeking new stuff. I let it sort of come to me. But it's, it's really interesting to me that people do that. Like, that they're like, I need something new to ship. Or that they read fan fiction for a show before they've seen the canon of it. That is I've like, only done that once. That's mind-blowing mm-hmm. to me. I find that like in, like just something that I I'm like what that fandom sort of goes that hard if you know what I mean that they or that the fan works uh that yeah. powerful like Oh, like the amount of people who will say, "Oh, I'm I've started watching Teen Wolf because there's so much steric on my dash on Tumblr." Yeah. Yeah, that being like, "Oh, yeah, I've read I've read really good fix in that fandom, so I'm going to watch the show now." And I'm like, <laughs> Well, and for me, and for me, having been in supernatural fandom going back to two, early January of 2007, literally, yeah. and the reason I started watching Supernatural is because I was very into Torchwood. Yes. And someone said, oh, you like Jack Harkness. You should read this crossover with Supernatural. Okay. I'm like, I yeah, haven't yeah. seen Supernatural. And they said, you should read it. The story is called Stars in the Twinkling Foam. It's adorable. But it was part of, I think, the Jack Harkness snugs everybody in every fandom ever challenge. Yes. <laughs> Which is very appropriate. Speaking of crossovers. You know, that's that's so yeah. an appropriate. important one. Like, yeah. So appropriate. And, and see, yeah, I don't watch, those... and I know exactly how that's how it's relevant, isn't it? it that's it, like an, a prime example. I don't yeah. watch is the entire yeah. fandom's bicycle. The entire but yeah, fandom like, community, I know, not just I know one that. fandom. All yeah. fandoms. Jack is all the fandoms. Yeah. Because you've know. got you've got a hot bisexual time traveler, so you can, sh- can shag everybody fandom. everywhere. Yeah. Oh, in in a story in canon where there are multiple universes. Yeah. Mm. So it it's it's just possible. Anyhow, so that was the one and only time in my life that I read a piece of fan fiction before I started to watch the show. And then I didn't read any more Supernatural and I started watching the show. But it was also right after Croatoan and everybody was like, you need to watch this show. So having watched it for so long, and then I occasionally, you know, in the last year or so, I've seen people on Tumblr saying, you know, I'm watching this show from the beginning. Where where are the nerdy angels? And I'm like, they don't show up for years. <laughs> yeah. You got some time. Yeah. Um. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I see it so so much, and it's just uh, sometimes it is crossovers. Or oh, I read a Fallout Boy fan fiction that was a Pacific Rim AU, so now I'm going to watch the movie of Pacific Rim to understand it. If you know what I mean, I see that kind mm-hmm. of thing. But like reading canon compliant fic of say Steric, like oh, I've been reading all of this fic uh, because I want to ship these guys, and I've seen a gif of them on Tumblr, so now I'm going to go watch the show. It's just like it's just the development of fandom like that never would have happened you know a while ago and and just that that fandom develops that way is is really really Mm -hmm. interesting and strange I don't know because there's so much more access to things I mean we all we all probably remember back when mailing lists 
guests were the way to get fiction. And if you were not having a completely on topic conversation, you could run the risk of being banned. Your posts would be deleted, you know, forums as well. If you were off topic, your stuff would either be deleted or moved and you ran the risk of being banned from the forum if that was something you did consistently. And by moving to sort of a live journal style format, people started, I guess, becoming more multi-shippish. I was Harry Potter exclusively until Doctor Who rebooted and started airing in the States. I didn't pay attention really to any other... fandoms in terms of fan fiction. I mean, I would sometimes follow people's recommendations and, you know, read stuff. And I, you know, certainly did my little Lord of the Rings humor time. Mm -hmm. But in terms of writing fan fiction or doing vids, it wasn't something that was easy for people to fandom hop before you were being exposed to stuff on people's individual blogs. Yes. Like, yeah, it's like, oh, I have to catch up with four different forums, you know, I have to, you know, and talk about different things on each one or whatever, as opposed to, uh, you know, even having a live journal feed where you could be in seven live journal communities that were all there on your feed or whatever. And it was fine. RSS didn't even exist. RSS didn't, you couldn't have a feed of something until what, 2002, 2003. And that was, sort of the first time that you were able to read a lot of content without hopping from one location to another. And even then, I mean, I was, one of the things I explained in my chapter in fic was that when the Harry Potter fandom was first starting, not only was Google barely in existence, which I know is kind of hard to believe. I remember, I remember Ask Jeeves being the standard search engine. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And Alta Vista, but you had oh to manually. Oh my God, Alta Vista. Wow, yes. Sorry, continue. But if, you, but if you wanted your story or your fan site to be listed in Yahoo, which was like the big comprehensive search engine location, then you had to manually go and find the category and manually enter your stuff and someone would read it and click a button and list it at some point. Oh. And that was how, I mean, that was how people would find fan fiction in 99 and 2000. They would go on to Yahoo and they would go into the fan fiction category and it was no rhyme or reason. It was a mess. Just, wow. Um, obviously things have changed for the better, which is. Which so is much nice. better. <laughs> I said we were such I, heathens then. I think one of the most interesting things as well as somebody who, you know, wants to be a writer and is in that sort of community is that you have to look at fan fiction and fandom from the other side as well. And, you know, we were talking about the powers that be and, you know, in the Teen Wolf world, Jeff Davis and the writers and all that sort of thing. And I think that it's really interesting looking at it from their perspective. And we're lucky with Teen Wolf because they are very pro fanfic contests and artwork. I mean, they share artwork on their social media all the time and all the actors get really into it and it's amazing. But my main question is, what would you say to maybe a community of fandoms uh, creators that aren't necessarily as pro, you know, fanfic and fan art as Teen Wolf is? 
Well, I think these days almost everybody's tolerant of it. It's very hard to be a TV show or a movie studio or a cartoon or a comic book and not want the creative fans on your side because they are, we are very loud, very vocal and very able to get stuff done when we feel like we are being transgressed and somebody is overstretching and overreaching their bounds. So if anybody these days were to try to ban fan works, they, they wouldn't ever get a following. Nobody would want to watch them because they wouldn't be able to feel like they're free to create and discuss and be inspired by it. And they would also feel like they're jerks. Why should I give them my money Yeah. or my time? But the flip side of that is a supposition by fans that the creators are engaging in fan service and they're doing X, Y, and Z to make the fans happy or to get more of you know that group of fans to watch them or pay attention to them or buy their merchandise. And I think that a lot of stuff gets assumed to be fan service when it may or may not be. I mean – while the show's creators may be in touch with what's going on, that doesn't necessarily mean that the powers that be at the studio are, and there might be something that they're requesting. I mean, I know Supernatural used to go through this a lot, where the people at the network wanted X, Y, and Z to happen. Two girls to be in the season, even though the storylines weren't necessarily configured for it, et cetera, et cetera. And there might be pushback from the fans, but it wouldn't necessarily impact what the studio wanted. And I think these days we don't see as many of those discussions, even though you would think that we would via social media, but we're not seeing necessarily what's going on behind the scenes. And sometimes there are issues, you know, depending on people's availability that impact the way that a story goes. I mean, Colton Haynes leaving Teen Wolf to, you know, do Arrow definitely impacted season three of Teen Wolf because it wasn't the same story that they had originally plotted out because he left. So they couldn't do that anymore. So I think that these days, because the fans are a mainstream force, because the fans are a more knowledgeable source on average overall than they were you know, 10 years ago, there's a lot more catering to it, but also because of social media, there's a lot. I mean, Nielsen these this year, Nielsen looks to hashtags and it impacts show ratings. So they have a reason to try and get people to watch and watch live or at least watch that week and participate in what's going on fanishly. So that's become a thing. And that's why they want more people to create stuff and hashtag it. You mentioned before that fan fiction is becoming more mainstream and uh, that, you know, the, the powers that be are more perhaps accepting of it now. You know, we had novelists back in the day being like, this is plagiarism, you can't do this and that kind of thing. They were and, wrong. Yeah, I, I know. They were a bit, you know, stuck in their stuck in their ways. But, you know, you also have sort of the general quote-unquote civilians out there in the world who – also kind of think the same way that aren't really exposed to like what fandom is like and that, you know, they hear that, you know, their daughter or their sister or their brother, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever is, oh, spending all this time writing fan fiction, you know, even, you know, their students, as I said, I don't know if you've read a Rainbow Rowell's fangirl, but there is a very good kind of, I think it, it has a very good grounding in the civilian perspective into fan fiction and why it is different from writing regular fiction. And it has that standard sort of argument of, well, if you're writing tens of thousands of words, why don't you just write your own stories with your own characters? And I've always sort of viewed writing 
fan fiction is not better or worse, but like a totally different skill set to writing original fiction. Um, it is. And, and so h- how is that best explained to the world who might not really understand why you might not want to or ha- even have the skills to write a 60,000-word original novel that you're going to sell, but you could easily write that about Teen Wolf? We could get into a 97-hour discussion about (laughs) how there is an inherent force within the media and culture to denigrate things that women tend to enjoy. I mean, how often do we see articles and discussions and family members slamming on somebody for their fantasy baseball team? Or for going to a parade after somebody had, you know, after their team has won, or even just going to sporting events in general. How often do we hear people say, (laughs) crying over them? How often do we see people saying things like, oh my God, why are you off taking photographs of your family? You're never going to become a professional photographer. Yeah. And it's the same, it's a hobby like any other. And you know, you may not be getting the same sort of physical thing out of it that somebody who does cosplaying or, mm. you know, costume bounding would because you're not necessarily, you know, getting something that you can wear in public mm. or, you know, even to a con or something like that. But you're doing something that has you participating in a community, has you interacting with people, has you developing a skill. I mean, even if you're not going to become a professional novelist, just by learning how to write fan fiction, you're learning grammar. And that's always going to be useful when you do, you know, even if you're just doing memos or something like that at the office, it's, it's a fantastic skill to learn and establish whether you're in your teens or your twenties or your thirties or your fifties. It's something that you're going to be able to use probably in more of you know, a consistent way and more of a helpful way, if that's important to you, than doing a fantasy baseball team, which, you know, might teach you sort of management and statistics and structural organization of things. But it's it's definitely still a hobby that people have a tendency to not criticize. And maybe that's because yeah. more people who do fan works are women. And when guys do it, it tends to get more attention. I mean, how many of you guys remember um, someone, some guy who did James Potter and I think it was Elders Crossing? No. Okay. Women had been doing, obviously, had been doing Harry Potter fan fiction for how many years? And this guy wrote a story called, I think, James Potter and the Hall of Elders Crossing. Yeah. And I'm not trying to call him out. I'm really not. But he was a website developer, so he did a very pretty site for it and really strongly implied that it was an authorized sequel because he had written a letter. Yeah, he wrote a letter to Neil Blair, who's J.K. Rowling's agent, and said, I am writing this fan fiction and I would like to know if it's okay or something along those lines. And they wrote back and said that J.K. Rowling has no problem with fan fiction. And he took it to mean that his story was authorized or okay or fine or something like that. And then Rowling, of course, said, or, you know, Neil Blair, of course, said, no, we didn't actually mean your specific fanfic. We mean fan fiction in general. We're okay with it. (laughs) And I'm paraphrasing here. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have seen, look again, I'm not calling this person out either, but, I have seen that if there is an author in a fandom who is known to be male, 
they immediately mm-hmm. become very popular. And I and uh, it definitely happened within Glee. There's a certain Clane fan fiction writer who's well known to be a guy, and people give his stuff a lot more attention than it may compare to others. If you know what I mean. And I and I don't I don't really I don't really know exactly where that comes from. Like why uh, why girls you know why the young female sort of writers would perpetuate that, but it does happen, which is quite strange to me. I've definitely seen it happen as well. I don't think I've seen it so much happen in Teen Wolf per se, mm-hmm. although maybe that's just because Jeff Davis is our um, male fanfic avatar, <laughs> 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 and there's no and there or or yeah. you know possibly you know just Tyler Hecklin is our male fanfic avatar, okay. and there's no need for another one. Yeah, that's uh, it's true. Um, and I mean, with this with this situation, I guess. I heard a, a documentary recently, uh, an, a radio documentary done by the the BBC tr- about fandoms and and that kind of thing, and it was sort of trying to portray it in quite a, a positive light as opposed to some of the uh, documentaries that have been done on fandoms before. And one of the guys that they spoke to was uh, who I believe is trying to make his own uh, video documentary about the One Direction fandom, but he mm-hmm. was he was saying basically. That for the people that, that criticize this kind of thing and um, being like, if you have young people that are encouraging each other to write and read more, how can that possibly be something you criticize? Like, how can that possibly exactly. be a problem? And, like, that's a big part of it. But on a on a more sort of technical level, what do you think the differences are in the skill compared to, say, composing an original fiction? Like, what do you think the main differences are? Well, I think one obvious one is that you don't have to create your own world of characters. But obviously, it's possible to write a publishable story where you don't have to create your own characters. Baz Luhrmann does it all the time <laughs> when he makes his movies. No one's um, easy or whatever. No, nobody does. And how many to how many reinterpretations of things has Ken Branagh done? Yeah. And it's 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 common and it's typical, but I'm sure that if we found a woman director who was doing something based – well, that's not – you know what? That's not fair of me because nobody criticizes Emma Thompson when she updates – or not updates, but when she does, you know, stories um, like Sense and Sensibility or, yeah. you know, The Nanny McPhee. And there was no criticism of um, Amy Heckerling when she did Clueless. So that's not fair of me to say, although none of those are really happening at this moment. So I wonder what the response would be if somebody did it now. Like, let's say somebody decided to, oh, I don't know, update update uh, Josephine Tay's Brat Farrar or something like that to modern times. What would happen? Because that's something that I think is out of is now in public domain. Anyhow, so I'm not sure if it's the just the simple fact that you can write a story without creating your own characters, because obviously there's people who's writing stuff, you know, that Sherlock Holmes that is now officially very explicitly public domain and they don't have to you don't have to create your own characters. You can do something that is, you know, recalibrating whether it's an old setting, a new setting, the old West doesn't matter. You can still write with those characters. You can still write Shakespeare for a new generation. You can do the Scarlet Letter and do Easy A. So it's not just taking something that's old and making it new because then everybody would have the Lizzie Bennet diaries. But 
that's one of the reasons why I think people gravitate to starting with not starting with writing fan fiction, but doing fan fiction as a component of their writing life, because even authors who are doing, you know, completely, quote unquote, original stuff are going to be looking to or incorporating or bringing in tropes from other genres or older stories or things like that. And I mean, even if you look at something like Supernatural, which was originally premised to be Star Wars in the back roads of America, mm. you know, as your elevator pitch. And I think that that's what publishing houses and networks like is something that people are going to look to and say, oh, that's that feels right that. to me. Yeah. I um, mean, everybody knows Sleepy Hollow. That's not why it's a hit. But it gives you an introduction to the story and the concept and the world because everybody at least vaguely knows, oh, there's a headless horseman. You don't have to start from zero there. Yeah, there's already a level of interest or investment, which is similar with fan fiction, obviously, because you already know Mm -hmm. that you care about this character or whatever. And I've always found the way that I get emotional about fan fiction to be quite different to the way I'd get emotional about reading a novel that I didn't know anything about at the start. You know, not, not better or worse, it's just different things hit me, if you know what I mean. Like, like, oh my god, that person got that so right, as opposed to it coming from a different kind of place. I don't know, it's it's interesting. It is. Yeah, and I think speaking of, you know, people who have written fan fiction and have gone on to write, you know, regular fiction novels being published. I mean, Cassandra Clare is obviously one of the big ones. Fifty Shades is obviously a whole kind of different ball game there. But it's something that we've actually talked about before where we read the tie-in novel for Teen Wolf and we liked it, but we also said, you know, we've read fan fiction that was better than this, that kind of like developed the characters a bit more, gave us a lot more emotions about what was going on. And it sort of makes you wonder if fic writers could ever be approached to write sort of like side canon pieces and and if that is something that's possible and something that maybe even people would be interested in doing well there's a couple different ways um that that can happen and obviously the last year or so we've seen what happens with Kindle worlds where Amazon and Kindle set up this thing so that people could write stories within certain specific parameters in other universes and it's Kindle worlds and you can sell it and they get a cut of it and you get a cut of it. But then that got sort of utilized by the woman who had written the bulk of the original vampire diaries series. And she wrote the story the way that she had wanted it to end and has done, you know, extremely, extremely well because people want to read how she thought that it should go. So there's, you know, is that fan fiction? Is that Canon? Is that, you know, what the Canon creator has to say about it. And, you know, it's interesting in that way. Um, But I think it all goes back to the fact that when you've got so many minds working on something and talking about something and caring about something and paying attention to it, and you have a show that doesn't necessarily have a show Bible with all the information about everything that's already happened, and it has to fit into a certain framework, you're not necessarily going to get something that is exactly like what fans are working on. I would love to see an actual published, authorized by Jeff Davis, Teen Wolf AU. 
that's, you know, an actual novel or a situation where the story goes into an AU, possibly because I've liked that trope so much on Supernatural. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting when a show is able to go into a different universe and, t- you know, have their same characters and do sort of a canon AU. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's interesting to pay attention to and interesting to think about because every piece of fanfic gets to be AU in its own way. Yeah. And with those without those kinds of restrictions, you have a lot more creativity. If you don't if you do have restrictions on, you know, not going AU, then you're going to be a lot more limited in where you can go because it's got to fit in between this and that. Hmm. So would we feel the same way that I'm not so sure I love this if it was something that was set, say, in 2005 in the Teen Wolf universe. And I don't know. That might be a lot more appealing to a wide range of fans because it's not trying to fit into what we conceive of is going on right now. I know that 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 particular aspect is something that they've slightly addressed, like in the way that the only things they really reference are like classic things like, say, Batman or Star Wars and that they they. They don't try to glee it up and make it like the insular setting of right now uh, with Teen Wolf. So I think it is more accessible to to imagine it in different times or different situations. But mm-hmm. but yeah, that's something that something that I was wondering in terms of the fan works and the fan you know fan fiction as opposed to the the novels. Say you know like Star Wars tie-in novels, Doctor Who tie-in novels. Do you think that there would ever be any worry from the powers that be that if they approached fan fiction writers because those novels aren't always considered completely canon and do you think there'd be any worry if they approached say fan fiction writers to create those as actual published works tie into the show that they would almost be too good that they don't actually want the caliber to be that high because they don't want it to be considered canon I don't know. I would love it if they would. And the reason I feel that way is because shows like Teen Wolf and like Sherlock and Doctor Who have licensed and bought fan created content. It's happened in Doctor Who and Sherlock with fan art. It's happened with music in Teen Wolf. It's like the idea of them pulling to publish fan stories is that last hurdle that they have not gone across yet. Yes. And I don't know. I'm. Sh- it will eventually happen. Yeah. But whether it happens in a show that is created for that purpose or whether it happens in a show that they just decide this is an interesting and a good way to take it, I don't know. Mm. But I'm hedging my bets here to say that in the next six years, I expect that there will be either a broadcast show or a web series that does that. Yeah. I mean, I was just uh, something just popped into my head as a perfect example of the kind of thing that really could work in. I, I don't know what shows it would work in today, but okay, back in the day, there was a million Buffy tie-in novels, and some of them were okay, mm-hmm. and some of them weren't. But some of the best things that Buffy published was, I think, four volumes of books which were Tales of the Slayer, which were individual sort of one-shot stories about various other Slayers, and that kind of thing. If that had been fan created if that had been fan works they were good but i think they were done by sort of writers who wrote tie-in novels as opposed to fandom people 
And that kind of thing, uh, if that kind of thing could exist where it's maybe that they don't want to have it directly affect the canon of the current show, but right. but in universe that's fan created uh, would be really a really nice way to tie it in possibly. And I don't know if that would be possible with Teen Wolf, but there's, you know, many a werewolf history story in there, I'm sure. But, mm-hmm. but it's also like the idea of, I don't know if you guys have seen, I don't know if any of the listeners have seen, um, the sort of Avengers magazines. Basically, it's a multimedia project where somebody creates magazine articles and covers as if they existed in the Avengers universe. Mm -hmm. So it's things like have Black Widow and Hawkeye broken up um, mm. <laughs> and, you know, remnants from Asgard, what was found in, you know, in yeah. Greenwich, you know, Greenwich last summer and stuff yeah. like that. And it's awesome because it's creative things within that universe that aren't necessarily accurate because it's all being written by tabloid reporters mm-hmm. or fashion <laughs> reporters. Yeah. And I think that it, I think that that sort of thing might be an interesting bridge for the powers that be sort of in the same way that JK Rowling in writing the tales of Beetle the Bard and actually writing those stories and publishing those stories. She takes, she gets into wizarding mythology. And I remember very early on reading a fic and I think it was technically Steric, but the shippiness wasn't the relevant part of it. It was Styles asking for Derek to tell him werewolf fairy tales. I want to read the werewolf fairy tales so badly. <laughs> yes. Why did you stop? No, no. Uh, yeah. Okay. I think that that kind of thing is a good, like an usable idea for like, yeah, where fan work could come in if they don't want, if the powers that they don't necessarily want it to affect the canon of the current story or whatever, which on one hand I can understand if, because I think that uh, some shows have been damaged by uh, responding directly to the <laughs> fandom as opposed to hmm. sort of writing their plot line in a bubble with, with their clear ideas for it. But, you know, there's a balance that has to, has to be there. Uh, yes. Okay, so Teen Wolf obviously started, I think the popularity in fandom kind of shocked a lot of people. And it, it, like, Karen, you've watched since episode one, right? Yeah. So you've kind of seen how this has grown and, and it's just, it's it's blown up for a lot of people. So we can understand where a lot of the fan creation comes from now. But is there any um, media or even pairing that has inspired a fandom that kind of surprised you uh, with their enthusiasm? Uh, for example, a Night Vale, Les Mis, uh, anything like that? Well, I think Night Vale hitting last year was a bit of a surprise because, but in a way there, there is precedent, a little bit of precedent for it. I'm not sure that people would have been seeking out podcasts if Sherlock hadn't been so huge with such a long hiatus that caused so many people to get into cabin pressure and then start looking (laughs) into podcasts. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I know that obviously isn't the reason for a lot of people, but it is the reason why some people were off looking for podcasts. And for some reason, Night Vale, having that combination of fantasy and science fiction and mystery became... And queer shipping. Canon queer shipping is a big, big deal, obviously. Mm -hmm. Exactly, because it's something that was extremely, extremely rare until very recently. I mean, we all remember, it's it's been, what, barely three years since... um, 
since Kurt and Blaine were on the cover of Entertainment Weekly. And that was like a brand new thing that was just unheard of and this trendsetter. Mm -hmm. And I think now it's so it's normalized. I mean, not necessarily because there, you know, there are still some horrible people out there. But as a general rule, if a series showed up now and had you know, gay high school kids having romances with each other, nobody would blink and it certainly wouldn't be on the cover of a magazine. Yeah. It would just be, oh, it's another example of this great trend. So because Night Vale has this amalgamation of so many things that fan that fandom fans and fan writers and creative fans tend to gravitate to, but also having just since we don't know what anybody looks like, a lot of space for creativity. And because it's a fantasy and mystery combination, there's a lot of room for people to play around with that. And by having canon gay characters, there's a lot of interest in taking these characters in directions that the canon has left open for them without sort of feeling hamstrung by what has you know by what has already happened in other series is that have similar tropes i mean it's not twin peaks even though there are some similarities it's not x files even though there are some similarities in terms of the genre mm-hmm. um well what are some works that are um texts that you wish had more fanfic writers because you think it would make great fanfic Oh, gosh. It's it's hard for me to say because I've never been the best at sort of predicting the big new thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I go to Comic-Con every summer. I watch the stuff. Um, I I could probably spend a couple minutes talking about why I think Starcrossed is problematic in many different ways, um, mm-hmm. both as a narrative and as infanticizing of teenagers and Mm -hmm. why the diversity trope in it does not work for me. Mm -hmm. But I, I kind of don't want to go there too extensively. (laughs) Um, so I think that, you know, looking at what the networks are looking at and looking at the movies that are going to be coming out, I feel like there are so, there are so many different things that are going to be inventive and creative in terms of books, in terms of movies, Divergent is going to obviously explode, mm-hmm. but it may not explode with fan fiction because Hunger Games didn't. And I think everybody expected there to be a lot more Hunger Games fic than there is. And mm-hmm. people love it. It's very popular in terms of fan art, but it's not as big on AO3. It's not as big on fan fiction in general, I think, as people expected it to be. Um, you know, you've got, yes, you have, you know, a couple thousand stories about it, but you're talking about 4,000 versus, you know, something, you know, even something like Sleepy Hollow, which is almost at 700 mm-hmm. and has been around a lot shorter period of time. So it'll be interesting to sort of see what happens with that. Um, there's, there's always, you know, new books that are coming out that have people writing fan fiction about it. And the interesting thing about, you know, Rainbow Rowell's fangirl is that people are not only obviously writing fan fiction for the book, they're writing fan fiction for the fan fiction. <laughs> ah, that's, I, I didn't know that. And that was kind of a second, you know, a secondary part of, of this idea about what kind of stuff 
doesn't usually get touched on despite the fact that it has a massive fandom presence. Like you said, Hunger Games, for example, doesn't have as big a fanfic presence as you'd expect compared to its fandom. And, mm-hmm. you know, maybe it has a massive, like, Tumblr presence or just obsession, you know, uh, with the canon. Uh, what, you know, what do you think are the reasons for things generally not getting touched on in fan fiction? Uh, is it because people consider them untouchable or, like, fine as they are? I've seen, like, a lot of sort of arguments and essays about fan fiction being a response to, like, a lat- lack of satisfaction with the canon. So do you think stuff mm-hmm. doesn't get touched because it is satisfactory to people like they love it as they are as it is having paid having paid attention to hunger games for i guess about four four or five years now um i think for hunger games everybody expected that there would be a massive amount of fan works about it Mm. but a lot of discomfort with the final book Mm. may have kept that from happening Exactly. And because it's neither a standalone nor something that had large gaps, because I think it was like every every 11 or 12 months there was a new story coming out. So we didn't. And then it was like a year and a half between when or not even that it was less than that, I think, between when Mockingjay came out and when the first movie came out. So it didn't have that sort of three year summer that Harry Potter had. And of course, at the same time, Teen Wolf was starting to explode and One Direction was starting to explode. And that may have taken some of the air out of the room. Hmm. What about things that are are very huge uh, that don't necessarily get fan fiction in terms of, say, John Green's novels, uh, which are massive and beloved and you see a lot of fan art, but not fan fiction, despite the fact that it's it's a you know very creative community that that surrounds them even though those are books that you know do have a lot of questions towards the end and and do you think that's just a manner of of things being a standalone uh happening less or do you think it's like as as i said like more of a satisfaction with the canon or what stops people wanting to touch a fan work when it's not just because they're distracted with other fandoms or something like that your average standalone or even your exceptional standalone is going to always have less stuff about it than a series with a few very, very big exceptions. I think in terms of, of books, the only thing that I can really think about that has um, that's a standalone but has a massive amount of fan works from it is Good Omens. And that's been around mm-hmm. for 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. And People are Good Omens fans because they are Terry Pratchett or Neil Gaiman fans. Mm. Most people don't come to it as their first. For me, it was my second exposure to Neil Gaiman. I read his Douglas Adams biography first. (laughs) Oh, no, no, that's not true. I read the Duran Duran biography first. Oh, really? Do you still have a copy of that? Because it's worth so much money Worth billions. No, a friend of mine got it for her bat mitzvah (laughs) when it came out. Incredible, incredible. Incredible. And then she moved to New York. Oh, so does no. she know how much it's worth? Oh, that's amazing. Um, it was it was actually my first of uh, both Neil and Terry Good Omens. I found it through fandom. I found it because the same fan artist that was illustrating a fan fiction I liked was also doing illustrations of the them from Good Omens, and I'm like, what is this? And then yeah, so it's interesting. But um, 
Did you know people are writing Night Vale, Good Omens crossovers, and oh, they're wonderful? I'm so not shocked. I'm so not shocked. I think that things like that really work. I think Good Omens is a fantastic crossover uh, fodder, if you know what I mean. But Oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, I wanted to talk a bit about sexuality, basically, because fandom is sort of a really huge exploration in sexuality for a lot of people, especially for young girls. And you see sort of people making quips and jokes about how it's like, in the same way that young boys discover porn, like girls sort of discover their sexuality via fan fiction, which may or may not be true. But so many fandoms involve sort of things that, that maybe if an outsider was imagining a 15, 16 year old girl uh, sitting around writing and reading about Maybe as some like kinks and tropes and taboos that wouldn't necessarily spring to mind when you are looking at a, a you know, a young lady reading reading <laughs> books on the subway or something, which is <laughs> it's fine, it's actually awesome. But what do you think kind of attracts people to reading and writing these works, even starting right from the top at say when one of, I remember when I first discovered fan fiction, um, one of the first things I was involved in was Dawson's Creek, and in terms of Dawson's Creek RPF that existed it was a lot of say self-insert say some girl getting <laughs> to meet Josh Jackson and dating him you know like and then it sort of really swung away from that and so many young girls are interested in queer male relationships and then we take it even down from that to every kink that could possibly exist like so much stuff especially in Teen Wolf but pretty much AUs in any fandom of like Alpha Beta Omega like Dynamic Mpreg incest which was huge in supernatural before castiel existed in and it happens in any fandom you get fandoms where two people aren't actually incestuous and then you'll they'll rewrite it as like oh these two people are brothers now but still getting together anything you can think of exists basically and you know some of the writers are older but some of them are younger and what do you think gets people into this kind of exploration with fan fiction i think that in a lot of ways it's a way to sort of test the waters of what you either are interested in or interested in learning more about. And in a lot of ways, I can see how it can freak people out. But when I was first starting to get involved in fandom, I was already in my 20s, I was married. And I was like, they're teenagers, why are they reading this? And then I kind of remembered that when I was 11 and at sleepaway camp, my bunkmate said, you really need to read these two books, they're by Judy Bloom. And one of them was Forever, which, you know, girl camp losing virginity. It's something that, you know, m most girls in the States read when they're 12, 13, 14 years old. But I also read Judy Bloom's Wifey, which was I was way too young to be reading this book. I don't think I understood half of it, but <laughs> it was I don't know have it, how many of I you have read, read it? it? I don't know if people don't know still it read it, no. but it's basically a woman who's a housewife in the late 50s and early 1960s, and people in her neighborhood are starting to have affairs and key parties and swingers, yeah. and you know, there's a lot of what we would probably not now necessarily find explicit, but I certainly thought that it was when I was 11. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And this was something that just the girls in my bunk who, you know, were mostly my age or a year older, most of them had already read it. I mean, they obviously had read it before they came to camp because they brought those books to <laughs> camp with them. Yeah. <laughs> and 
you know, here I am seventh grade and this is what I'm reading. And I shared a copy of Clan of the Cave Bear with my parents while I was on a trip in Europe when I was 14 years old. And nobody blinked at it. Nobody thought anything of it that I was reading you know, these stories that definitely had very physical aspects of it when I was a very young teenager. So I don't see that reading fan fiction is that significantly different than reading those stories. I mean, and all through the 90s, um, girls, you know, young girls, teenagers were reading Anne Rice's vampire novels, which definitely have a lot of slashy elements to them. I think that's why everyone's so shocked when Tom Cruise agreed to do the movie. But <laughs> um, and for a lot of people, exactly. And for a lot of people, that was their first, you know, exposure to, you know, Brad Pitt in a full length film. But, you know, that's a different story. So I think that what people are finding in fan fiction is an easy way to read a wide range of content. And I was in Supernatural when the ABO stuff started to develop and become, you know, there was a meme about it and there were fests and things like that. And I remember just, when that wasn't a thing. I swear it wasn't always yeah. such a major trope. Like, yeah. And, you know, it never was a thing in, for example, Harry Potter. Yeah. And, you know, with all of the, you know, animaji and werewolves running around, you would expect that there would have been some of it, but there was none of it. It was, you know, it was in X-Files, I guess, a little bit, but it never really became a big thing until, I guess, the last two or three years. And it's interesting sort of seeing how it's developed. And I think it grew larger because Teen Wolf had canon alphas and betas and omegas. Yeah. And it gave people a chance to sort of take those tropes and expand them. Yeah. I just sometimes like to imagine like parents' faces if they knew like some of the tags and tropes on some of the <laughs> But my parents would have freaked out if they had known that when I was eleven and they You're sent me off to summer camp wifey. I was reading mm-hmm. Wifey. Yeah. And you know, yes, they knew about the clan of the cave bear thing because they were sharing the book with me. But it's like watching everybody a couple months ago when everybody was live tweeting flowers in the attic when they redid <laughs> the movie. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> we were discussing that. We were discussing yeah the the whole VC Andrews thing and and how they how were, it traumatized us. How, well, how they were like such major bestsellers and how like there has to be be some ongoing interest in in various taboos that has just stretched forever pretty much like and w- basically just why people are fascinated with it. It's it, it I mean there's college courses on it. I'm sure you can you know, we don't have time to go into that on this podcast, like about why people no, but, like stuff. But but exactly. But there isn't a single, I'll use the word kink. There isn't a single kink that you'll find in fan works that isn't in a mainstream published book. It may yeah. not be written about quite as graphically, but it's there. Yeah. At least as a form, at least as a fade to black content. Yes. And, you know, I'm just saying that because, you know, more than 10 years ago, I got in a huge fight with somebody in Harry Potter because even before book five came out, I was vaguely convinced that I, I didn't think it was serious. I actually thought that Lucius and Narcissa might be cousins Okay. because JKR had already hinted that there was a lot of very closely related families in the wizarding world. And I was yes. like, well, that's the obvious one. Mm-hmm. And it turned into, you know, debates on forums as to whether or not JKR was okay with incest because she was having first cousins serious as parents. 
Yeah. Who it's very strongly implied were first cousins. And, you know, I've always been convinced that Sirius and Narcissa were meant for each other from the time they were born. But that's something that, you know, everybody forgets that that was a plot line in Pride and Prejudice. Yeah. So I think Game of Thrones, uh, with everyone sort of picking up the, the novels of George R. R. Martin now, I think it's something that is obviously also addressed more in sort of what people are mainstream reading now and and yeah you know up until relatively recently you know anything upper class is going to be kind of incesty like um Northanger Abbey no which one is it there's another there's another Jane Austen that is the main relationship is their cousins like that's and it's not questioned like it's it was quite normal. So yes. yeah, it's just interesting uh, that sort of, it's just all taken in stride with fan fiction. It's just something that, you know, young people, it just must be a generation of people who are so less easily shocked. And I kind of love that. Like that it's like, because yes, we were, you know, we're all reading things and discovering things, but like the amount of people, you know, that do that via fan fiction and that, you know, the, the amount of whether it's explicit or whether it's unusual or whatever, they're just, it's just, it's so unflappable. Like it's so, no one's like, oh my God, that's super. There's very few things that people would get up in arms about. If someone was like, I'm writing a fan fiction about this. There's very, very few things that people would be like, that's awful or gross or wrong or something like that. You were crossing a line. And yeah, there's very few, the lines in the sander are very different now. And I kind of, on some hands, I, it kind of stresses me out, but uh, about very, very, very few things that stresses me out. But in general, I, I think it's a really, a really good thing, and it's it's a really maturing thing, and and it's interesting to me, basically. With one exception, and I'm probably jumping to a different part of the conversation mm-hmm. that we want to have, but the one exception to that I think is RPF, and there are there's still a very strident community that believes that all RPF is inherently wrong. Yeah, I have some questions about the sort of arguments. In, that have come up about that. So I think that's going to be a little bit, uh, not argumentative, but I think that's going to take some explanation. So we've got a couple of... We have a few fun questions. We have a few fun questions first. <laughs> yeah. Woo! We have an RPF section, do not worry. Yeah, in terms of a little bit lighter than that. Shall I lead this one with uh, the story <laughs> of how I woke up to some text messages one day about... Uh, this Folgers commercial that was apparently <laughs> incestuous and they had yeah. to explain it to me because I had never seen it. And they were talking about fan fiction and that sort of thing. I was so confused. So they sent me to the commercial. I have now seen it. I'm graduated to the next level. And uh, yeah, mm-hmm. the question is, what are some of the weirdest and even the funniest pairings that you've seen or crossovers or AUs, anything like that? Oh, um, my favorite crossover is probably, I love crossovers. I mean, I absolutely love crossovers. So one of my favorite fics of all time is called The Eagle of Truthiness. And if people don't read fan fiction, but like Harry Potter and Stephen Colbert, I make them read this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> You can Google. You just Google the Eagle of Truthiness and it will show up. And basically, Stephen Colbert is the Defense Against the Dark Arts professor. And I can't tell you anymore because I can't describe it any more amusingly than the story is. So that is 
basically my go-to if I need, you know, a very funny, ridiculously brilliant, awesomely written crossover. But I love crossovers. And my friend Cleo, she's Cleo underscore JLH on AO3, wrote a series, including, I think, a, one for me that I requested for my birthday once. She started writing a set in the 1980s crossover between Pretty in Pink and Ferris Bueller's Day Off, <laughs> which is obviously Ducky Cameron. Beautiful. And they're made for each other and it's perfect. And Ducky is in the music industry and Cameron is a political consultant. And obviously because he's from Chicago, he works for the Obamas and it's wonderful. So, you know, that's the kind of crossover I think that when you tell somebody about it, it just makes sense. Yeah. And I think that's one of the best things about crossovers in a way that if you tried to explain, no, really, Supernatural crossed over with Harry Potter because their mom, and this was obviously written before, you know, we knew Mary was a hunter, because their mom was actually a witch and she kept it secret and they're at Hogwarts, even though they're in their late 20s and it's awesome. And that's a little bit harder to explain or yeah. get into if you're not into both of the canons. Yeah. But it's a fantastic story if you like both. In terms of sort of cracky concepts that work really well, there's a very, very famous Merlin modern AU, and I think it's by Rage Proof Rock, called Drastically Redefining Protocol. I literally have that fan fiction printed out and bound in a folder in my room to read. It's, it's, <laughs> because it's just it's, that good. It's it's uh, Rage has written two of my three, like, very, very favorite fan fictions, and that's one of them. So... Yeah, that's that's not even cracky. That's art. That is like it's so good. It's it's so it's it's so good. But it's and it's so funny and it's so perfect. Merlin is such a good AU. Mm -hmm. You know, it's such a good AU opportunity because it it is a canon. You know, in the canon, it is a story that could occur again at any time. If you know what I mean. And that's that's mm -hmm. really cool. And yeah, but yeah, drastically redefining protocol is yeah one that I I often recommend to people as well because it again it just makes perfect sense but what about when it comes to like th there's a beautiful category on AO3 I think I can't remember what you call it exactly but it's for like things that are not actually a book or a movie or something like that that they are yes. yeah and what is the weirdest stuff that shows up in there well Such so you'll tied every Folgers commercial for example <laughs> <laughs> yeah so there's this thing that happens every fall called Yuletide, yeah. and that's when people write stories that are for either small or new fandoms. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's a fandom that's not really a fandom. It's just there's a video that's been uploaded to YouTube, or sometimes it's a fandom that's a relatively small fandom. For two years in a row, I've done things involving the TV series Political Animals yeah. for random reasons. So I think back in 2000. 2012, one of the biggest fix of the year was Octopus steals my video camera and swims off with it <laughs> while it's recording. And that inspired a fic, and it's ma it was massive in 2012. People still go and read it and review it, and it's just extremely, extremely popular because it shows what creativity can do when it's inspired by something else. And, yeah. and yes, the, the, octop the person who's camera was stolen by the octopus possibly owns the copyright in it but since it was mostly shot by the octopus we're not actually sure <laughs> because octopi cannot hold copyrights in things really no, no seriously there was there was a law journal article a couple years ago about 
who owns the copyright when a camera is strapped to an animal and the animal films it. Oh, good. All right. Because animals can't enter contracts. I mean, this is actually a thing. It's not often debated in the legal community, but it's a topic of discussion. Actually figure out. Yeah. Beautiful. Exactly. But, you know, it's something that was owned by somebody else or, you know, at least shot by somebody else. And it inspired a story and it inspired a thing in the same way that things get inspired all the time. I mean, if you look at its Oscar season while we're recording this, so people, you know, people have been looking back at old Oscar speeches and things like that. And it's 20 years, I think, this year since Tom Hanks won for Philadelphia and gave just an amazing Oscar speech. And the AIDS crisis was still at its height at that point. There, you know, there weren't treatments the way that there are now, et cetera, et cetera. And in his speech, he spoke about one of his one of his drama teachers who was gay and in doing so basically outed the teacher publicly in the community. And that inspired the movie In and Out with Kevin Klein and Tom Selleck and Joan Cusack. And that's how something that is, you know, commercialized, commercial movie, everybody was paid massive amounts of money for it. The movie was a hit, was inspired by something that wasn't necessarily copyrighted, but certainly wasn't original to the people making the movie. They yeah. made this movie because this speech happened. Yeah. And, you know, that's not exactly what the question was here, but it's it just it's an example of how fan fiction is such a creative mode for people, but it's also not only done by people posting stories online. There's so many other kinds of fan works or inspired works or transformative works out there. And fan fiction based on octopus steals my video camera and swims off with it while it's recording is just another example of that. Now, to get back to Teen Wolf, there are a couple hundred fics on AO3. Oh, I'm probably exaggerating. There's a couple dozen fics on AO3 that pair Styles' Jeep and Derek's Camaro and occasionally <laughs> Jackson gets jealous. Oh, the Jamero. It's Jamero, guys. Oh, good, good, good. Oh, that's awesome. Okay, well, okay, another fun topic before we, we jump into the uh, scary RPF topic. Um, the, I, one of the, one of my favorite things of AO3 is the tagging system. You can pretty much yes. tag it any way you want. You can add anything. In fact, one of the things we were shown today, actually by Danya, was a Twitter account called Tags of AO3. And it just shows some of the funniest tags that are listed on these fics and gives you the, uh, the fandom that it goes with. I'm just going to read a few examples and then we'll, we'll ask about more. But there's one uh, for the Avengers. There's a fic that's tagged misuse of laundry rooms. Hmm. Um, <laughs> there's one uh, for Supernatural. It says some tentacles. Um, <laughs> let's some. see. And let me some, you know, just a few. And then I want to say but that's let's, um, Yeah. And then there's one for Teen Wolf that we found non-sexual use of bananas. And <laughs> that is just one of my favorite things ever. It has, it serves, you know, I guess it serves me. I'm laughing. It works. Are there any that you've come across that have just stuck with you? Well, there, there are some fantastic ones out there, but one of the awesome things about the AO3 tagging system is you can use it to find things that are concrete. Ship names, smushed mm-hmm. up ship names. You know, it used to be very, very difficult to find tags, and obviously AO3 was created before Tumblr was. So by incorporating the freestyle tag system, AO, AO3 was extremely forward thinking by building something into the system so that people could find things that weren't necessarily matched to a specific 
tag. I mean, there used to be a whole convention for shipping names. Like you had to have just the last name and then just the first name. And the person who was taller had to be first or blah, blah, blah. It were rules and you had to stick to the rules or you couldn't find stuff. Fandom is stressful, guys. Stressful. Yeah. And then there was, you know, in Harry Potter, there were ship names that were like the good ship, which was Ron Hermione. And then there were things like Wolfstar, which is Rain the Serious, and Pumpkin Pie, which was inspired by a specific Harry Hermione fic that became the Harry Hermione ship name and things like that. And you had to be in the know to be able to find that ship because it wasn't intuitive. And by AO3 sort of building in the ability to search by character and or by ship, I think was awesome because it gave a lot of room for people to play with freestyle tags like the fact that hurt derek has 150 tags <laughs> within Wolf. and <laughs> there are there are more than 7,000 on ao3 there are more than 7,000 mpreg fix for those who don't know that's male pregnancy um about 700 of those are in teen wolf which i don't think uh, comes as a surprise to anybody manipulative yeah, peter know. which is kind of you know generic there's generic which is of course one of the terms for jennifer and derek as a ship <laughs> mm-hmm. um which is always amusing and then you know there's there's the sort of more you'll only find one thing with this on it like that's totally not platonic or scott watches frozen oh i need this one that's the kind of thing that i i find interesting is kind of the and i mean tumblr has picked up on it and i probably think tumblr has picked it up from ao3 but the kind of idea of like communicating via tags rather than actually by the summary, summary which is interesting to me because on tumblr for example you almost get it like if you reblog something and then you put your sort of thoughts on it in the tags rather than just a, it's almost like sort of not really what the tagging system was originally invented for it was invented for finding and filtering things but then you see people using it as their primary form of communication because it's almost like it's almost like the the tone of doing it in tagging is different to the tone of doing it in the actual body of the text which I find really weird and like and cool, but like like just that it develops in that way, like almost like if you put it in the tags, it's kind of a bit more flippant in a way. Like if you you know you're mm-hmm. put, you're putting your conversation in the tags as opposed to I am making this statement on the public post. It's 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 really different. And on Ao3, I find it amusing that people, yeah, they put their regular tags of what the ship is and you know what the theme is. Say whether it's like hurt comfort or you know, whatever. And then they go on to, you know, things like, you know, non-sexual use of a banana and, you know, <laughs> all of that kind of thing. And that it's, and that they almost like, and that they also do that conversational, like, you know, this is going to happen. Right. You're going to deal with it kind of thing, like in the, in the tagging. And it's just, did you ever kind of expect the freeform tags to take on a life of their own? Not that this way. way. <laughs> Not this way. I actually ended up pulling because it it's something that goes from sort of the beginning of AO3 to now. And it's always it was big very early on. I went into Merlin while we were having this conversation <laughs> and I went back to the first page, the first five or six pages of Merlin fic. And you will see the characters and you will see the ship names and you might see some other stuff like misunderstandings, fluff, humor yeah. or hurt, comfort, first mm-hmm. kiss, yeah. um, dragons. Yeah. And then if you jump to and that's from 2008. And then if you jump all of a sudden to stuff from, say, 2010, you're going to find things that are a little bit 
broader, like age difference, promiscuity, you know, thick under 1000 words, which I don't think anybody does anymore now that you have the ability to really search for that a lot more explicitly, mm-hmm. you know, and things like that. Canon AU, again, ship names. And, you know, that's from like 2011. And then if you jump ahead and you're looking at stuff that's more, you know, more up to date, then you're going to find things that have a lot more, obviously a lot more content in terms of what you're finding in the tags. And it's amusing and interesting to sort of pay attention to because the way AO3 works is it's easier to search by tags, even by additional tags, than it is to search within a summary. So by putting these things into tags, it really helps people find, oh, I want to find stories that have um, alcohol usage, or I want to find stories where there are lies and trust issues. Or I want to find stories that are related to this particular episode. So all that stuff is going to show up in the tags in a way that it wasn't necessarily when the search the search engine was more looking at both the summary and the tags. Then people take it to a level of, you know, one use only tag uh-huh. of, 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 of this. And it's just this very witty and, and new style of humor is what's most interesting to me is that it is actually... a a new communication form and a new style of humor that I really love. Like I find it hysterical. So it's, it's kind of awesome. It is. It's fantastic. Okay. So we're going to tackle our, our, uh, our Everest here, which is RPF. And I'm going to, I'm someone who, as I said, I've gone up and down with RPF for very various reasons, but I've really noticed a lot about it changing. It's something that, as you said, Heidi, is, is very divisive, basically, or it, you, I think mm-hmm. it used to be more divisive than it is now. And uh, basically, obviously, RPF, real person fiction, is often the, you know, stories about the, say, cast of a certain movie or people in a certain band or just celebrities in general, basically. And basically, you get this very big divide of people who uh, I sort of see three parties, people who have never seen anything wrong with it and they just go with it and they, they don't have any kind of opinion on it whatsoever. There are people who go out of their way to explain why it's not a problem. Like for example, you said, uh, you know, the social network is a really good example, like historical precedences, how this is not an intrusive situation. This is, fiction and we know it's fiction and this is something that has literally happened for all of time uh and then there's people who are pretty much blanket that's bad and intrusive i for a while was on the bad and intrusive side only because i have friends in bands who had it happen to them and were not okay with it which is where a lot of my opinion on it came from it but as times sort of go on and a lot of like I, you know, obviously I'm not going to be looking up RPF involving my friends. So that colored a lot of it. But as times go on and you, you've seen the attitude changing and you've seen people have sort of less and less of a, oh, that's just wrong because they're real people. Uh, you know, the people who say that, have they ever watched a biopic of anyone ever? You know, like, have they ever read, you know, a Philip Gregory novel, or as you mentioned, like seeing the social network, which is literally based on a book, which was, I believe, a semi-fictionalization of, of the situation. And I mean, there's basically a lot of questions that can be raised about, you know, whether the the people involved, uh, you know, if they're bothered by it, if that should color your opinions of doing it, or 
or how big the disconnect is, the level of fame that's considered acceptable. There's so many questions raised about it. And uh, I, I know that, for example, One Direction has absolutely blown up in terms of fan fiction. Their official desktop calendar said, have you written yeah, One Direction fan fiction? Have you shared it on, you know, your favorite fan yeah. fiction sites? And we all know they're talking about Wattpad. <laughs> oh, Wattpad. <laughs> well, let's not even talk about Wattpad. Um, it's, yeah, and it's interesting because it is something that they, as a, as a fandom, do kind of endorse, uh, even though I don't think they really understand how, how serious people get about it. Um, <laughs> but then you also get basically... The, the other big aspect, I'm not really asking a specific question here, I'm sort of rambling my thoughts and then I'd like to hear yours. The other big aspect that I've seen as a problem with RPF is where it potentially exacerbates the tin hat kind of people who do damaging behaviour in real life, if you know what I mean. Who People who ship something, but they ship it not just in the context of fan fiction, they ship it in real life and then they they break the fourth wall with that behavior in a way that has become damaging to the fandom. And I don't personally think that fan fiction is a thing that should exacerbate that, but it does happen and it gives the RPF side of fandom a bad name, if you know what I mean. I think that it does, although every so often you'll have a situation where two people from a canon actually get together. Look at Mila and Ashton yeah. right now. Mm. And, mm -hmm. you know, I remember a couple years ago when there was an actual rumor, I think, in People magazine about, um, you know, regarding the X-Files. And it was, you know, all over the place within, you know, all over LiveJournal within minutes because people oh saw it God, in People, in people magazine. True. Yeah, like, Exactly. Yeah. My ship is coming true. And, you know, not to, not to get hinky about it, because there hasn't been there was never very much RPF in Harry Potter fandom. But in more recent years, when both Tom Felton and Emma Watson have said, you know, flirty things about each other, it, it explodes people. And, you know, that's not saying anything ever happened, will happen, et cetera, et cetera. But people see comments like that and they it's not even that they're reading into it because they're just reading it at face value and it just becomes topic for discussion. So, you know, I think that that's part of it. I think that some of the issues about RPF go back to literally five, 10, 12 years ago, where the idea of writing somebody as gay was considered an abomination. That was an insult. It was libelous and slanderous. By the way, to get on the legal side, there are explicit court cases. Well, no, I don't mean explicit in the sense of NC-17. <laughs> I'm sorry, I need to be more careful I know what you mean. I know what you mean. There are on-point court cases that say that saying that somebody is gay, even if you're writing it in a factual piece and they're not, is not defamatory. That's not considered defamation anymore. So if that was an issue in the 90s or in the early 2000s that you were concerned that you could be sued for defamation because you wrote a story where somebody who was straight was written as gay in the story, that's not, at least in the United States, that's not a legal issue anymore in at least you know, in circuit level case law. So that's, I think, something that has to have changed in the last 10 years or so. And I feel like the social network as a movie and also now the Wolf of Wall Street, which is a major fictionalization, which, by the way, ignores the plight of all the poor people who were completely screwed over by Leo DiCaprio's character. I think things like that being within the mainstream just then becomes 
normalization of RPF. But on the flip side, back in, say, 2001, when Toulouse-Lautrec was a character in Moulin Rouge, and I was like, but you liked Moulin Rouge. How can you say all RPF is bad? And they're like, well, he's dead. It doesn't count. Yeah, that's a big thing. I was going to say, that is a big thing that I feel like no one says, but it kind of sits with people that they're like, no one pinpoints it, but it's like people feel like there's a difference if they're writing about something currently happening versus something that, like, is historical in some way or they're writing it after the fact like people taking say harry styles did a thing yesterday and then someone's writing a fan fiction version of what that meant today that that is somehow more intrusive than writing their interpretation of what toulouse latrac did in 1899 and as i said i don't know how i feel about this i don't know whether i agree with the point i just made or not but i think that it is a thing that people think about Exactly. And even for something that's relatively more, you know, early, way earlier than social network, but more modern than Toulouse-Lautrec, Kill Your Darling is, I think all the main characters in it have passed on by this point. Mm -hmm. So that gets into, you know, that issue. But for me, one of the reasons I never had a problem with RPF in fan fiction is because one of my absolute favorite novels from, I think, 1995, although it might have been 1996, at the very least she was alive at the time, is a published novel by a guy named Peter Lethcourt called Die and I, which is about an American screenwriter going through a messy divorce who goes to London. It's a comedy. It's a satire and falls in love with Princess Diana at an embassy event. And they have an affair and there is definite shagging on the screen that is not fade to black. Mm -hmm. And Fergie is having an affair with Ross Perot. And that's a novel Mm -hmm. that you've that you was know, published. that you could buy in bookstores like, yeah. that was published. You know, I don't remember exactly who it was, but it was one of the big yeah, publishers. There are a lot and the royal family, actually, there's a lot of comedy novels about the royal, the current royal family, like, which is interesting. Exactly. But they don't all have shagging scenes, yeah. you know, yeah, adulterous yeah. shagging scenes in them. And that's, you know, for me, it was a funny novel. And I guess in part because we've all, you know, stateside, we've all grown up with Ben and me, Ben Franklin and his mouse. We've all grown up with seven. 1776. We've all grown up, and in the UK, people have grown up with, you know, Shakespeare. What is Shakespeare mm. if not RPF? Yeah. You know, what what are certain interpre- interpretations of Henry the Fourth if not RPS? And it's, you know, it's just something that is standard. It's a standard writing trope to write about people who really existed. One of my favorite yeah. novels of of all time is Catherine Neville's The Eight, which is, you know, all, fr- you know, French Revolution. It's, you know, Bonaparte and Prince Talleyrand and Catherine the Great. And yes, Ben Franklin shows up again. It's a thing. <laughs> but I think, you know, because of because of stories like that and because it's I in other words, there are no legal issues with RPF as long as it's not meant to look as if it's real. So yeah. if you're going to write your RPF, put it on, you know, BuzzFeed as a listicle, you might have some problems yeah. with that. But if you're going to write it and put it on Tumblr and say, you know, fic as a tag, or you're going to put it on AO3, you don't even have to tag it as fiction. You you know, it's, it's obvious because of where it's located and where yeah. it's hosted. So because of things like that, I feel like there aren't the legal issues that people tend to generate of RPF. And... I do understand why people might not want to read it. It's not their thing. It's not their ship. It's not their it's not their fandom. It's not what they're interested in. Fine. But when people say, 
I am morally opposed and so should all people be. I don't get that because it's a storytelling trope. It's something that has always happened. People have always been writing about people who are alive and people who are dead. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it is a really knee-jerk reaction, possibly because they haven't heard of it before, you know, especially people from outside outside fandom, they hear about it and they have this knee-jerk reaction of, that's really weird for some reason. And and it's just something that I guess they, they don't think about it in context of the way that it exists in the world outside of, you know, teenage girls writing about One Direction or something. Like, they, they have this knee-jerk reaction which isn't really fair, which I think is something I've thought about a lot in, in recent time because, as I said, I had a knee-jerk reaction because my friend felt uncomfortable about it happening to him. It comes from that place. I don't read me. RPF about people I'm friends with. Yeah. You shouldn't. No, it's a bad no, idea. no, 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 of course. I I, uh, I don't either. But it was something that I was just like, oh, that's really bad that people have done that, if you know what I mean. Uh, whereas there is a lot more detachment and maturity in it than perhaps the outside view would expect if or have you believe if you've not been involved with it sort of from the inside it the outside view is that it's somewhat delusional and and i don't know if it's because like bias. oh i hate that word oh i know people are like that people use that word about everything with fandom and it's very offensive mm-hmm. and it's, it's it's like do you really think that these people that they know they're sitting there writing it. They know it's coming from their brain. Do you think they think that it's really happening? Because that's what you mean when you're saying delusional. Like, it's it's not like they're believing that it's true. They know that they've written it as a story. Like, you, you do get that, right? But it's, it, yeah, the, just the external knee-jerk reaction. I don't know if it's because, say, a biopic, for example, Kill Your Darlings, is at least marketed as being it's meant to be a truthful retelling of the events of the life of an important person rather than you making up a completely fictional story about it even though they do add elements it's it's almost like people have different standards because biopics don't admit to the fact that they're fictional if you know what i mean i they- think that that's true but i think that it also goes to the idea that if it's something that teenage girls or 20-something girls or young girls or housewives or moms or women of any age are doing, it's looked on as something different than something that is done by, you know, professional men or, you know, large networks or, you know, small independent film companies, mm-hmm. even if the story is the same kind of trope and the same kind of genre and the same kind of well-written narrative. I mean, because yeah, there's poorly written stories out there and that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about criticism of the concept and the genre, not individual stories that might not necessarily be, you know, the best thing you've ever read. Mm. Is there anything else about RPF that you feel like that fandom kind of either needs to know or people outside fandom kind of need to know uh, obviously there's rpf and fiction based uh fan fiction <laughs> on on ao3 um are, yeah. are there any restrictions for between the two of them that are different in terms of like characters that can be involved or like you know non-famous people or anything like that or is it the same standard for all fan fiction on on AO3 We generally don't put those kinds of restrictions on it I mean obviously if somebody was disclosing personally identifying information like either a famous person or a person related to a famous person's email address or phone number or address or private photos that would be a different situation. But so far we haven't dealt with that. And I hope my mentioning it doesn't cause yeah, a God, but, yeah. God, yes. But 
we, I mean, we haven't had that sort of thing happening. And I know it's happened. I know whose Facebook accounts have been hacked into. Yeah. And it's, it's horrible when that sort of thing happens, mm-hmm. but that's not the same as writing something that's fiction or writing something that's an AU. I mean, there's a massive amount, you know, specifically I'm thinking supernatural here. There's a massive amount of supernatural J2 AUs, which take Jared and Jensen as personas and put them in completely different universes, you know, space, old West. But then of course the show did it by having, you know, having they have the, that uh, yeah the, yeah yeah I, I don't i haven't even seen the show but i know what you're talking about everybody oh. yeah everybody knows about it because they did it and they weren't the first show to ever break the fourth wall in that way mm. but it's obviously it's not something that's commonly done because you have to have a very established show and a very established viewing public to yeah. be able to do that and possibly one but, that really understands fandom itself like you wouldn't do it with a show that doesn't have that kind of fandom exactly yeah and you know i think for a lot of reasons i guess what i don't understand is when there's so much of a mainstream acceptance of real person stories that have been fictionalized and fictionalization of real people I mean, look at Will Wheaton on The Big Bang Theory. That's yeah. not the Will Wheaton who we know from, you know, cruises and Twitter and Tumblr. That's evil Will Wheaton, the character yeah. that exists. You know, that's his character in The Big Bang Theory universe, which is not our universe. Yeah. Because that exists and because that's a commonly accepted way, I mean, it's the mainstream does that all the time. I don't understand why it's something that can't be acceptable or at least not a moral issue. Although I've seen it much less slammed as a moral issue, I think really since the social network, so I guess since 2010. Yeah, I think I totally agree with you. Like, I've seen people who I follow on Tumblr who literally tag their fic. Like, if, if David Fincher made the social network, then I can post this fic. Basically, that's their standard disclaimer on all of their fic. And I'm like, fair enough, I guess. Like, good, good way of putting it. Like... And as I said, like One Direction, it's obviously a massive RPF fandom now, and that's a fandom that, I, as I said, I'm not I'm not super involved with RPF, but the attitude of the people, at least that I see in the One Direction fandom about fan fiction, is very different to the attitude I've seen about RPF in other fandoms, say older fandoms that have RPF involved. It's almost like it was never a question for this fandom. It, there doesn't seem to be many people morally questioning it nowadays. That that actually seems to have gone down in a way that actually seems quite mature and and well reasoned. And I and I as I said, I do think the social network is a really good example of that. So perhaps it is a, a step forward in in that direction for people. I just have one last thought about RPF, and that is if the world has and has always had a wholesale ban on RPF existing, we never would have gotten to see Jensen Ackles doing the kimono dance in Blonde. (laughs) Well, I suppose that's going to sell it to any naysayers. We must cross our fingers. (laughs) But yeah, it's obviously not for everyone. 
But I think, as we said, a lot of people have a knee-jerk reaction to it that is possibly quite hypocritical. Like, they haven't thought about how much stuff exists in the world that is technically the same thing, if you know what I mean. Exactly. And if you guys want a list, I actually have an email that we wrote from the OTW to somebody who was horrified by RPF uh, a couple years ago. And I've got this huge list in here. A very truncated list would include bunch of different things joe klein's primary colors milk all the president's men sunday in the park with george tom stoppard's the invention of love just mm. a whole bunch of different things in here the bananarama song robert de niro's waiting <laughs> which is a self-insert rpf involving robert de niro beautiful yeah and i mean i love biopic as movies anyway i feel more invested in the people uh, and learning about their, you know, their truths and all of that kind of thing with biopics. Like, so I think that it can potentially be good in that way. I have one final thought on it as well, which is that basically shipping and RPF does not equal tin hatting in terms of, for those who don't necessarily, oh, people use the word tin hat in very different ways, but when it comes to RPF, it generally uh, refers to people who legitimately in real life believe their ship is happening and that either can be a fun and private thing that you kind of might feel a bit silly about but like squee about with people when so-and-so interact in a certain way or it can be a quite damaging and abusive thing where you send crazy insane hate tweets to people's family so basically being involved in RPF does not mean that you you know does not equal tin hatting and tin hatting also does not equal crazy fourth wall breaking abusive behavior towards the people involved in your ship so I really enjoyed actually the BBC did a thing a little while ago last year with One Direction that mentioning fan fiction and they were going to do a sort of segment with them reading out fan fiction and the host no 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 it was amazing the host okay he no no he went and he he basically he said Originally, I was going to get some fan fictions for you guys to like read and act out, but I went into the fandom. I, I kind of saw how this all works. It's something that they do for them. It's not intended to be made fun of, and it's not intended for exposure to you. It is. He. I could not believe the way That's he spoke about it. That was so perfect. Wonderful. And he was like, "I've written some cute." He basically wrote his own fan fiction scenes for them to act out, which were like Aww. stupid and funny of them, like sitting in a nursing home being, it was adorable. I'll send you the video if you like, because it was incredibly well said. And I was like, good on you. Like for like, he, they did not do the, you know, I'm sure you heard about the Caitlin Moran, BBC, Sherlock thing. I actually. It wasn't even RPF. It was, it wasn't even RPF. It was about the show and it was still so offensive. But the um the One Direction thing that I mentioned was I've never seen someone handle it so well in terms of RPF, and I was really impressed by that. So, yeah, RPF does not equal necessarily being, uh, as I said, I think that the way that some people have acted about RPF shipping has given the concept of RPF a worse name than it deserves. I think that, that, I think that that's true, and I think that that makes a lot of sense because it's not – it's not the writing and the telling of the stories about it that's a problem. No. And it's not even the breakdown of boundaries and having 
having actors sign the cover page of a you know printed out version of fanfic because if you're not making them read it then looking at the cover of it especially if it's you know g or pg rated it's not it's not a horrifying thing to make people do in this day and age that you know that should be considered so problematic and offensive but yeah when people when people start sending hate and twitter makes it so easy to do it and tumblr makes it so easy to tag your hate and it gets in the way of other people's enjoyments in a way that is extremely potentially negative Mm. it crosses the line do you want to know the best thing that i've ever heard in one direction fandom about I'm assuming that you know that there are people who are incredibly badly behaved in terms of believing in their ships in with One Direction. Well, it's not so much badly behaved in believing about their ships. They're badly behaved in acting out yes. their feelings. Yes. And do you want to know the – well, it's it's not the most insane thing I've ever heard. The most insane thing is, like, contacting their parents and siblings being like, your son hates you for keeping him in the closet. Like, basically. Uh-huh. That's the worst kind of thing I've seen. No, the stupidest thing I've ever seen involving fan fiction is that people who ship certain One Direction ship not approving of RPF because it exacerbates the idea that their fic is fictional and that's not the impression they want to give. That's the thing I've seen happen. So I'm going to go yay RPF over yay those people. So, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) if you know what I mean. And that's your stance. (laughs) That's the weirdest thing I've seen regarding RPF in a long time. So, yeah, that's a bit of a flipping it on its head, I suppose. Thinking ahead ahead for AO3, um, are there any plans you guys have in mind? Uh, Specifically, I know a few of us are curious about a possible app. There's hope for it. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if there's a team that's actively working on it right now, but one of the reasons why it wasn't, you know, an Insta priority, I think over the last couple of years is because it is so easy to take content that is on AO3 and Mm -hmm. read it in whatever reader is best for you. And the thing Mm -hmm. about doing an Mm -hmm. app is you have to, it would be important for for AO3 to have it in basically all the major types of operating systems and also have it in multiple languages all at once. And that's a complication because right now the site itself, you can read the entire thing in one of a variety of languages. And, And to be able to create apps that port all of that over is not very easy, especially because because it is so easy to read a fic in Kindle or read a fic on iOS. And, you know, compared to, say, for, for example, what what I was doing, you know, before, or, you know, back in the days when Palm Pilots were the rage, mm-hmm. you know, I would have to load something and convert it to text and switch it into the right format and plug mm-hmm. my thing in and move it over and unplug it. And I couldn't get it off of the, the Palm Pilot until I replugged it in. So this, to me, is obviously better. Um, and because it's such an easy way to read things offline, you can connect when you're on Wi-Fi, whereas an app would have to have that ability to download stuff. And then you're dealing with the capacity of various devices and updates. And there's so many levels of complexity in doing it, both language of operating system, language of language, that it's not going to be an immediate option, but like I said, since there's so many other ways to get your stories onto your mobile device or your tablet, it's it's not obviously an absolute substitute, but it's not terrible either. Yeah, it's it's 
I mean, AO3 as it exists now is is very easy to read the homepage on just a mobile browser on your phone. And obviously it has the option to download EPUB, PDF, whatever, like straight from, which I'm sure is not something that's ever existed for a fan fiction website before. Um, no. It's, uh, it's, it's one of the most sort of revolutionary aspects of, of AO3. So yay on you for instilling that. Has that feature been there since the site's inception? I think that the PDF ability was, but obviously the site, the original version of the site, like not even in beta form, which it is now when it was in alpha form. I don't think that iOS existed when we started or if it did, it was like at the same time, the app store, I don't think existed until like 2008 Mm. and AO3 started development in 2007. So, you know how Betty White is older than sliced bread? I think that the AO3 is older than the App Store. <laughs> it's certainly been very innovative, you know, for fandom. And it's it's also, it's interesting to think about it, that the kind of new generation of fandom, you know, I, whether that's Teen Wolf, One Direction, you know, whatever fandoms are up and coming at the moment, will have never known the toils of, of not having everything neatly right there for you on AO3 and having to the ways that we would have to uh, find Vic originally. So it's it's been a, a humongously amazing resource for the fandom. And obviously you recently just hit the one millionth fan work on there in, in the time that you've been operational. And it's uh, cool that you chose to, to join us for that. Thank you guys so much <laughs> for inviting me for this. It's just been a fantastic conversation that's covered so much. And I really appreciate having the chance to talk about all of it with you guys. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, uh, just to round off, just a couple of little things. Do you have like a go-to literal favorite fan fiction of all time or a short list of top three I know that's going to be like the hardest question in the world for you but like is there one that's like if I was going to rattle off three right now I probably could like do you do you have uh like something that's really stuck with you um well the very first fan fiction I ever read in my life was Laurie Summers's Paradigm of Uncertainty and what fandom is that That was Harry Potter. It was mostly written before book four came out. Mm -hmm. Um, And although, you know, it got updated and she wrote a sequel to it. And it was, if I'm remembering correctly, one of the first times that fan fiction was mentioned in Salon magazine. They wrote about the story. They wrote about um, POU in the summer of 2000 because, my God, it was July of 2000 and we had another 11 months or so, we thought, to wait for another Harry Potter book. So <laughs> what were we going to do but read fan fiction? Three, two, you know, three years later. Uh. Exactly, the the three-year summer. So for me, Paradigm of Uncertainty is, it's my first fic. It's, it's a reasonably good first fic for anybody who liked Harry Potter to read because even though it was completely Jost, and Jost means made explicitly non-canonical and could never have happened. It's a good story, and it's a very fun and readable and awesome story. So I like that. And, you know, since I come from Harry Potter, Copper Badge wrote a story called Registration for me when I was waiting in line to um, register one of my kids for kindergarten. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had to sleep out all night to get in line for it. Oh, my God. So he... 
I was sitting out there and eating chicken fried rice and sitting on a lounge chair. And he kept me amused by writing me this story about how you had to put your name down for Hogwarts before the year ended. And Lily was about to go into labor and James was with her. And I guess it was like looking to like a mid like summer equinox as a date. So Remus and Sirius instead went and waited in line. And it was just this adorable story. And it's it's a cute, short, fluffy little fic that's adorably Harry Potter. Uh. And, you know, then there's stuff like drastically redefining protocol in Teen Wolf. I think probably one of the most exceptional stories that I read when I was first paying attention to the fandom was Scouts Honors the Difficult Kind, which is it's hysteric fic. It's a road trip. Um Styles is heading off to Tulane and they go on a road trip together and it's it's very <gasps> talky and what? Coney. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I just realized I remember reading that one because it sticks out to me because I I live uh you you mean Tulane, like New Orleans, correct? Yes. Okay, I live an hour north of New Orleans, so that one really stuck out to me. I was like, oh, that's really cool. They're talking about Mardi Gras, and Mardi Gras this weekend, so. Yes. Sorry, go yes. ahead, go on. <laughs> yes. And other than that, pretty much any story that anybody ever sets at Disney World, I will read. Oh, my God. Oh, I just Amazing. read a Skittles fic in Disney World. I read that, too. <laughs> it was beautiful. I read that, too. <laughs> um, <laughs> Look at us. Brooke would be yeah. so proud, guys. I'm so proud. Um, so yeah, that's that's our fan fiction discussion. I'm sure that we could have talked for about 17 more hours about <laughs> every fandom we've ever been a part of and every trope. And it, it, it's such a huge world. And I mean, the best thing about fan fiction is that you just get to spend more time. This is what I remember saying this, like when I first got into Teen Wolf, I'm like, I need fic because I just want to spend more time in this world, basically. Like I want to mm-hmm. spend more time in this world, which is the biggest thing with fan fiction for me. Uh, and it's, yeah, it's been really, really awesome. So everyone should give Heidi and the team a big thanks, not only for coming on this show, but for giving such a, a great home to to our stuff. It's been, yeah, def- I think the fandom experience has been vastly improved since AO3 has developed itself. So, yes, yay. Agreed. Yeah, the tech people and the coders and the help desk people and support, the work that they do is just amazing every single day. And, you know, for people who don't understand or who aren't familiar with how AO3 works, everybody involved is a volunteer. All the board members, all the staffers, pretty much the only people who are, you know, not 100% volunteer are the tech side that hosts the actual website because they occasionally have to go and plug things in and stuff like that but the site is it's volunteer supported you can become a member then you can vote for the board it's all you know it's an all volunteer thing and it's I think it's important to have a resource and a site like that in fandom that's created by fans for fans and with love for fandom and you know the tagline that I've been using for years that I picked up from somebody in connection with Yuletide maybe 10 years ago is fandom is my fandom (laughs) and that's that's how I feel and that's how a lot of people I think at a at AO3 feel is that we're fans of being fans and it's an awesome thing for people to experience because it's a great, great community and it's informative and educational and fun and discussy and it it can incorporate everything that you, you love. 
I literally don't think I could imagine my life not being in fandom. So yeah, I, I don't even know what I'd do with with myself, like or what I'd think about. Like it's it's strange to to imagine. But yeah, it's obviously something very important. And obviously Teen Wolf is not the only fandom on AO3, so it yeah, means a lot to us that you chose us to come over to because I believe when we when we set this up you said that, you know, if Teen Wolf fandom hadn't grown so quickly then you guys wouldn't have hit this benchmark so quickly as well yeah the one million fan works so you know you can all give yourselves a pat on the back for that i suppose good job, team team good job. yeah good job ao3 yay Woo. Cool. so just to close up i just wanted to uh, ask heidi a bit of a bit of a, a non sequitur question which is a usual ending part of our episodes which is actually uh, about conventions because Heidi uh, also used to be a big part of the HPEF, which you guys might know, ran, what was it, eight, seven or eight conventions? Eight. Yeah, of, yes. for Harry Potter um, called, uh, I can't remember all of the names of them. They each had, every year had a different name, I believe. Ascendio. Nimbus the Witching Hour, Nimbus the Witching Hour at Lumos, Portus, Prophecy, oh, I got those in that opposite order. Prophecy, Portos, Azcatraz, Infinitus Ascendio. Yes, that's yes, I remember. That was running uh, for what was it? Did it stretch over ten years or less than? Was it less than ten years? We worked on them for ten years because we started planning O three in O two, and the last one was in two thousand twelve. We're talking about doing another one in twenty fifteen. Oh wow! So we're doing a poll on Facebook now. I don't know what's going to happen with it. I can't think about my life in twenty fifteen yet. So. Anyway, we are going, we as the Not Another Teen Wolf podcast team are going to BiteCon, which is a fan-run Teen Wolf convention happening uh, in next month in April in LA, yes. which is going to be very exciting for us. And BiteCon has been fantastic in that it's not a com- it's not a company-run convention. A lot of the single fandom conventions, obviously you would know, are run by convention companies. They're not really run by fans and it. It's not always the best experience, um, you, you know, but this one is, you know, from the ground up run by, a, a, you know, a panel of fans in the same way that you guys did, which we're really excited about. But basically, we're going to go there and present a panel about being on this podcast. So basically, do you have any advice for us about our, about attending the con and as as kind of fandom guests, if you know what I mean? It's it's we're all a bit nervous. <laughs> no oh, pressure. I I love fan cons. I love, I've been to obviously all the ones that I've done with HPEF, but I've also been to a couple leaky cons. I've been to a number of cons organized by, you know, sort of the corporate kinds of things. And they're very different. I've done comic con many, many years. I've done dragon con. And for me, the best thing about it is just getting to sit around with people a little bit before your presentation at mostly after your presentation, just because everybody has so many other questions and things that they want to talk about and discussions that you can have. And you can just go, you know, on so many completely tangential conversations and online is an awesome community if people can't get to conventions or can't get to conventions regularly that's fine because the online community itself is fantastic but meeting with people in you know in real time and in person it's a different kind of conversation and it's a different the feels are different and the squee is different and it's it's a different 
sort of celebration of all things Fanish. For me, in addition to the HPEF ones, back in 2004, when I was with the Leaky Cauldron, we hosted a celebration of Prisoner of Azkaban in New York. We bought out the theater. We literally, originally, we thought we were going to sell maybe 200 tickets. We bought out the entire 660-person theater, and it was fantastic. And it was amazing to, you know, play trivia games and celebrate, you know, this semi-spontaneous experience. And then afterwards, people went out for margaritas or they went out for Italian and all the conversations just kept continuing all night, literally. And that's that's just such a fantastic thing to be able to get to experience. But like I said, if for people who can't go to something like that, you can have such an amazing fanish experience without going to something like that too. But they're, you know, they're just two awesome things to get to enjoy. Well, that's... Uh potential good news about the HPEF con, which may or may not happen in 2015. I don't think anyone really knows what they're going to be doing no. in 2015 oh, at this point. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, the cons Heidi was involved with were a pretty fantastic experience for the, for the fandom. I know a lot of people went to a lot of them and it's, it's just, uh, yeah, she's obviously been a massive and uh, positive fandom presence for a long time. And it's cool that she is kind of part of our fandom now too with Teen Wolf. So, yeah, I mean, we'll we'll let Heidi go now, but if you guys have any sort of further questions for us about fanfiction and AO3 or questions for the team at AO3, Heidi, can anyone get, send you some feedback about this episode on Twitter or how would you like to do that? Definitely. On Twitter, I'm traveling Heidi. And on Tumblr, my personal one on Tumblr is Heidi8. But if people have questions that are specifically detailed to legal issues of fan works of any kind, I have a blog on Tumblr with my friend Hannah, who's also a lawyer, and we have it at fyacopyright.tumblr.com. So that's F Y A H copyrights. Yeah. And it's. It's fantastic because it gives us a chance to talk about all the legal issues that impact fans or that are of concern to fans and hopefully get some accurate information out there, especially when people are doing science experiments and on Tumblr users by saying that the Tumblr terms of use means that they're going to own all your stuff. And we have to counter that somehow. Oh, God, yeah. Ugh. Yes. Well, thank you for providing that resource to people so that they feel, you know, safe as fandom creators, it's, it's very important. And it's obviously something that's not, it's a very new issue in terms of the world and the legal profession and all of that kind of thing. It's not exactly something that's been going on for a long time. The internet presents lots of special and new problems for the world to figure out answers for. Exactly. And the thing is when people worry about whether or not they're going to get in trouble for writing something or creating something, that's silencing. That's silencing of their voice and silencing of their creativity. Mm -hmm. And when people know that you're not going to get in serious trouble, you're not going to get sued for all the money you have, people aren't going to get you kicked out of college, hopefully you won't get fired from your job, although obviously in right to work states and communities, then that's an entirely different issue. But as a general rule, nothing horrible is going to happen to you because you're participating in fandom as a matter of law. And the more people know that, the more their voices are going to be heard and the more creative content people are going to feel free to create. And that is magic. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for, for thank coming Thank you, ladies. On. This was awesome. And yeah, thank, thank you. you to Karen and Courtney and the rest of our team. We all 
wrote the questions and they were a bit rambly, but hopefully you guys have all enjoyed hearing about it. <laughs> well, you've been listening hearing for, this, about for this long, so, <laughs> so you're used to it. It's yeah. fine. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, thank you to, to everyone, and we'll, we'll speak to you soon with a new episode review, presumably, but this is a, you know, a big thanks to AO3 and a big congratulations to AO3. So, yay, let's all clap. Yay. yay. Thanks, y'all. <laughs> okay, we'll let you go now, so we'll all just say bye, and then I'll sign off. So, bye-bye, everyone, and bye, Courtney, bye, Heidi, bye, bye. Aaron. Bye. Bye.